Hello again, friends! And you are our friends. And I'm already smiling and laughing. Welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornette's Drive-Thru right here, wherever you may find us on this summer's day. Maybe it's nice, maybe it's hot, maybe it's just right where you are. We have a lot of stuff to talk about. If we were recorded this yesterday, we would have been like, what are we going to talk about today? Nothing but things to talk about with this man, the star of the drive-thru, Mr. Jim Cornette. What in the French fried titty fuck are you so happy about? Well, the you weather's so nice. You so pleased. You so giggly and giddy and just tittery. You're tittery, Brian. Tittery. Tittery. You're a, a very tittery person today. That's Tits McGee's uh, formal name, Tittery McGee. Well, that's, that's you know, it, it's a little bit long. It's only on his driver's license. But I've already informed you that I'm the opposite of tittery today. That I'm about as untittery as you can get. And so what, are you trying to make up for my lack of titteriness by being overly titterly? Or titterary? No. No, you're doing a good job yourself. Uh, no, I'm not doing that. I'm just trying to have a good show for the wonderful listeners out there. And uh, Oh, now you're trying to babyface yourself. After you just <laughs> unprofessionally right. fucking slandered through that open. And I've already informed what? you that I've, you just, you were just, in yeah, some place it may be hot, some place it may be cold, some place it may be just right. What is this, a porridge episode? That's not slander. An episode full of porridge is what you're getting today, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry, I didn't mean slander you. I mean, uh, um, staggered your way. Ver you were verbally staggering. You could have been arrested for WRAF, walking recklessly and attempting to fall. See, you're verbally slandering. I was verbally staggering. You were staggering while I was slandering. And we were both slanted about it. Anyway, I've already told you, I'm not feeling good today. I'm, I'm a little distended. I got to sour belches. I'm a little lethargic. Because I'm irregular. Things have not been going as they normally do over the past couple of days. I don't know what it, it has caused this, but I've been eating normally. But I've not been evacuating normally, both in terms of schedule and and in terms of, of volume. And I'm I, it is, so it's it's gotten me off put. I'm I'm out of sorts today. I got a little twinge over here, and my 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 daggum my sciatic is acting up. I worked out in the yard yesterday. And and worked up a good sweat, but nothing seems to want to. In the middle of the night last, because I'll have you know, Brian, last, that ever since I got off the road and confined myself to my property here, I've told you I've never been in such consistently good health or had such good sleep. But now things like this, changes in my schedule and my regularity of things, it throws me at a, you remember a couple of weeks ago, I deprived myself of sleep for the first time in a long time. And I felt like three miles of bad road afterwards and now just a little thing like even the schedule for example last night three o'clock in the morning i wake up and realize that i gotta take the midnight train to poop town and you know this is a traumatic thing do you shit in the middle of the night ever i mean i have in my lifetime it's not a i don't have a nickname for it like you do the midnight train to poop town 
Well, it just do you have do you ever go and is that new evac evacuate your colonic irrigation there in the middle of the night when you've already been asleep and it's dark and it's quiet and there's not a creature stirring except for the fucking chocolate squirrel in your colon. In my lifetime, I have woken up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. Yes, it's a traumatic experience. It doesn't have to be. Well, no, it is because here's the thing. For one thing, you don't want maybe to for your up. wife. It's a traumatic. No, experience. no, no. Because she's not in the bathroom. What do you think? She sleeps in a bathtub. What the? Oh, get up! Get out of the bathroom! I got to take a shit in the middle of the night. What do you? <laughs> this is a private thing. But when you you don't want to turn the light on because you're asleep and you want to go back to sleep. You don't have to get up for hours, so you don't want to turn the light on. Right. First of all, because then that's going to. Oh, my God. It's like, where were you on the night of the 21st? You're being interrogated by the FBI. So you're doing it in the dark. And then even when you're sitting there in the dark, you want to keep your eyes closed, because if you open your eyes and you study your surroundings and you realize that you could be laying there in bed blissfully slumbering, but instead you're sitting on a porcelain throne firing off a fucking fudge rocket. Dropping the. Brown's off at the Super Bowl, letting the fudge monkey out of his right. cage. We get the idea. We get the idea. You don't want to wake your so you keep your eyes closed, right? Because that way you can simulate, you can imagine, I'm asleep, I'm asleep. There's just shit falling out of my ass, but I'm asleep. And it doesn't wake you up. But then there is some manual dexterity required because you've got to do the cleanup afterwards. And you've not only got to wheel off eight squares of toilet paper exactly folded over on top of each other so that you can wipe the first time and then fold it again, wipe the second time, and then perform the final fold and, and do the crack fucking wash with the sharp edge of the folded up toilet paper football before you throw it down. So then you can't do your inspection. Because you've got your eyes closed. And so you don't know what the, the volume or consistency was of what you just left. And then that throws off your whole note-taking fucking for the day. Because you, you can't deny, Brian, that there's no way that you're going to be able to record the volume and consistency of your duty with your eyes closed. In your in your poopy book, I don't have a poopy book, so I've never had to. How worry do you about keep? This. So you just keep track of this and it just by memory. I'm pretty sure if I have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, I open my eyes. Pretty sure that's part of it to aim, to know where I'm going, to wipe whatever it may be. Well, no, there's no aiming. Not Mister Duty sitting, Sleepwalker over here. There's no aiming. walking around if, the bathroom. If you're sitting, if you're sitting on the toilet properly, you don't have to aim. It's only if you're standing up doing number one, which is not, it, but that would just be ridiculous for us to be talking about that. Yeah, you're old. You must wake up in the middle of the night to do number one all the time. Well, yes, but that's easier. Number two is, is a traumatic experience for the body. There's, 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 <laughs> there's things moving around in your bowels. This is like the conversation we had the other day about pregnancy. You have a weird concept of anything that happens naturally inside the body. It's no, some disgusting, awful, things, horrible thing. It's happening these things inside. should remain between a person and his doctor. But anyway, <laughs> what after each evacuation, you got to look at it and make sure, okay, there's nothing wrong with it. There's no blood. There's no, there's no foreign matter stuck in it. And it's of the appropriate 
consistency and weight that I can say I've done my business for the day. That usually happens in the morning, like most people. And, and I will get on the scale and weigh, and then I'll take my morning Russo, and then I'll get on the scale and weigh again. And if it's approximately what I think it should be, then I'm, I'm relieved for the day. But if it's not, then I know that I have more work to do. But anyway, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go through all that in the middle of the night, so I went back to bed. And then the morning came, and I got up, and I tried to Russo and tried to Russo, and all I got was a, a little, a little mini, a mini Russo. And then I was thrown off, and then that's it's that's been it for the last twenty four hours. Well, thank you for that update on my show. That's exactly what well, no one asked for. I'm just telling you, that's why I'm a little out of sorts here today because of my physical condition at present. All right. Well, can we uh, continue on with the show? Or did you have more bathroom? I get no. I just updates, I just wanted talk. to let everybody know that if I'm not as normally as entertaining today as I normally am, it's just because I'm I'm a little I'm feeling puny. I'm under the weather. If you're unhappy because you took a puny Russo this morning, I'm pretty sure you had plenty of Russo last night to fill you up. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we'll get there you soon. Know, we'll get there soon. Good transition. Good transition. No, let's just, let's go into that now. Maybe this. <laughs> and we can talk about other more somber things later on, but maybe this will somehow instigate me to just shit all over the place. I'll do it verbally, even if I'm not physically doing it. Yeah, you know, the can, darks. Go ahead. Well, let me introduce this. This is the Dark Side of the Ring episode on Bash at the Beach 2000, I believe, with Hulk Hogan versus Jeff Jarrett, Vince Russo, and Eric Bischoff. Big parts of the behind the scenes going ons, and of course, Dave Meltzer, a big part of this episode. This episode may have been the epitome of the things that are wrong with the series right now, and also the most entertaining show in the history <laughs> of television. <laughs> I took lots of notes. I'm telling you. Uh, it, it, I think that two, two controversies or two facts have been settled here today or by this program. Eric Bischoff doesn't know nearly as much about wrestling as he has convinced many people that he does. And now you know why everybody, everybody hates Vince Russo if they have to spend more than 10 minutes in a room with him. And I will use his his name that he was given by his poor, unsuspecting parents through this program, because if you just threw around the nickname Shitstain, it would be so confusing as to who to apply it to in this episode. And especially at the root of this, it was a heel program between two guys, both with their own versions of delusions of grandeur. And... You're talking about the episode, not even the whole Russo, Hogan, Jarrett thing. You're talking about Bischoff and Russo. Yes, at the heart of it, that's what, you know, both people are somehow pleased to take credit for the absolute shittiest idea that was ever foisted off in wrestling. And they both believe that if it had come off exactly as they intended it, which was basically the way it came off, as everybody tells the story, that it would have been brilliant. They neither one of them have figured out that everything they did was the shits and everything they wanted to do that didn't get done was equally the shits. And it took 
both poor Lance Storm, who was just a locker room bystander in this, and Jeff Jarrett, the only one with any amount of, hey, none of this was my fault, so I can speak freely, that was involved in it, it sounded like they were rational individuals. Uh, but again, you, from the start of this thing, you can tell that Russo legitimately, he has lived in this idea that he did great genius things for so long that now he's convinced himself. And I guarantee you he could pass a lie detector test. That he was the greatest thing that ever lived and ever happened in wrestling. And that if only he had been able to do things completely unfettered, my God, the last 25 years, the business would have been 10 times bigger than it is now. Like it was right before he got in it to begin with, when it was 10 times bigger than it is now. I mean, but am I overstating this in any way that these two came off, at both of them, Bischoff, a well-educated, very verbose, more cultured version, but they both came off as delusional fucking lunatics. Did they not? I thought Russo came off worse than Bischoff. Well, yeah, I mean, you almost have to. Even from, like, the very beginning, it was like, I hate pro wrestling. I hate yeah. what it does to people, what it does to me. It makes you into this. It doesn't have to be like that. Oh, wait, wait. Wait a minute. He said, I, I, I wrote down some quotes. I despise the wrestling business and the people in it. You can't be a good person and exist in the wrestling business. Is that why he wasn't a good person in the wrestling business? <laughs> That's why we were all trying to get him out of it. We told you, Vince, you won't like it. No. I mean, with Bischoff, we know from other things that he has either uh, issues with memory, and this is a long time ago, and he's not a young guy, and he's not, you know, uh, he's not an archivist like you he's, or someone. He's not a truth teller, is what you were looking around well, trying to say. It's either he's forgetful or he just says things that aren't true. But at least he comes across, you know, very smooth while doing it so that you almost believe he has to know what he's talking about, unless you know the facts. And Russo is just this constant attempt to convince you of what he is saying. I have to be honest with you. I have to tell you. I have to be honest with you. Just be <laughs> honest. You don't have to constantly tell me you're being honest. Does that mean that, you're well, lying that, all that, the other times? Yeah, and that's also, that's what he does while he's thinking of something to say. Uh, you can tell, first of all, you can tell people who have never really been in the wrestling business because they use the word scripts. And he was doing that when he first, it, 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 that was where we first knew that he was a fucking completely clueless mark. I never heard the word scripts in a locker room until the late 90s. Maybe with some idiot from Turner Broadcasting's business department during the WCW days, but otherwise, late 90s, WWF. It was actually something people always shot down. Do you guys have scripts? No, we don't no, have scripts. No, fuck you. That, those were fighting words. That was a fighting word. The fucking script. I'll punch you in the fucking teeth. Is that in and the script? Then, yeah. And then he said, 
I was in the wrestling business since 1991. That it, it is awkward verbiage and poor grammar. Because so that makes thirty over thirty years. Does he think his fan radio show that he paid to have on a local radio station was in the wrestling business? Well, if we're going back to '91, he had a video store which had wrestling videos in it, and then he partnered with John Arezzi for a brief period of time. They yeah, had a, they had a very big breakup, and then he started trying to get in with WWE. He launched his radio show to help him try to get in with WWE. And then after that went under in like early 93, he somehow found his way into the magazine. He, because he kept beating on Linda McMahon's office door. And I don't even know if email existed then. If it did, he was writing them and sitting in her outer office and pitching ideas. Just and then he did the same thing with Vince. And then he managed to convince the Turner Broadcasting people from afar that he knew what he was doing and he got a job there that he, as this program delineates, failed spectacularly at. And then he convinced poor old Nashville Dixie that he knew what the fuck he was doing and leached off of her to uh, great failure for all those years. The company was worse off when he left it and when he got there. And they were farther in debt, I'll tell you that. And then since then, he has continued to beg people for a job by campaigning about how much better he used to do it and they ought to let him do it again. And every time anybody's let him do it, it's been the shits. So anyway. And also he says he hates the business and everyone in it. Why should he get any more chance? Everyone <laughs> in it, except when he's begging them publicly, give me a job. Or I'd try to tell Vince he should bring me back. Or I would offer my help to Tony, blah, blah, blah. By the way, I won't belabor it, but somebody go back and find the YouTube clip where you and I sat down and did some figuring and figured out that I have never in the history of my life asked for any job I've ever had in wrestling. They have all been offered to me. You know, the other thing is, I just want to say, Jeff Jarrett came across really good in this. Like, this is the best of Jeff Jarrett, sitting there, reasonably and rationally trying to explain something, not being hyperbolic. The other thing with Russo that's unbearable, the more you watch him, everything, he adds syllables to everything. Wrestling! Everything! Wrestling! Everything! He talks like that. You have to listen to that. As he's droning on and on coming up with ideas for people that he's never heard of before until three days ago or whatever. Anyway. And by the way, they had so many clips of, cause I wasn't watching WCW in 1999 and 2000. I was, had just started the OVW program down here. And that's the last thing I was going to watch was WCW. So I never saw so much of Vince Russo on television. And I knew he did stupid things. I knew he put the belt on himself. I knew he got speared by Goldberg and bashed his brains and gave himself further brain damage than what Mother Nature perpetrated. But I didn't. He was out there constantly, apparently. And here's the thing. Again, he was acting like that these were brilliant things he was doing when he said, well, Every promo that I cut, what, what, 
on every television show that you wrote yourself into. Vince Russo has never appeared on a television program that he didn't write himself into. And Brian, I ask you, going back to when it happened, you were old enough then, did you ever hear anybody say, what a great performance by Vince Russo? What a great promo Russo cut. Wow, did you see that great angle that Russo was in? Ever by anybody? No, I mean, of course not. But yet, I do remember one of his quotes was not in this episode. It was in an interview where he was, this was years ago. And he was trying to defend not only the way he used celebrities, but just any non-wrestling people inside or in the periphery of the blah, blah, blah. And this was a quote that I've committed this to memory. This was where this fucking guy's head was at. Well, if I can learn to work in the ring, anyone can. He convinced himself he learned how to work because he he wrote himself into a show to either take bumps or more often give people bumps or carry a baseball bat around like he was goddamn Buford Pusser wearing his Howard Stern wannabe fucking New York badass outfit. It's embarrassing. Howard he never, should be Howard ashamed. Never dressed, Howard Stern never dressed like that. <clears throat> no, but Russo thinks he did because that's who he wanted to be. Except if Howard Stern went around hitting people with a baseball bat. they The TBS executives down there hired who they had been led to believe was responsible for Vince McMahon's success, and he came in and shit all over the company and thought that he was making himself a star. And he was embarrassing the television program. Even Uncle Dave admitted he did long-term harm to the wrestling business. So then, Eric, let's get back to him for a second. Let's, get, let's go to Eric. What? I was just going to say, the funny thing about this was, it was like, Russo hates Bischoff. Bischoff hates Russo. Yes. They both hate Meltzer. Meltzer's putting them both down. It's the funniest thing. Well, that's why I'm saying let's, let's come back to Russo. Let's go to Bischoff. Eric Bischoff, here's a quote. I studied what made WWF successful and decided to do the opposite. Well, he did. They went out of business. And then he said, I was the first one to create live weekly TV. He didn't say except for every territory in wrestling pre-1984. And then he said bringing in Hulk Hogan in 1994 in WCW was a seismic shift. Hogan bombed as a babyface for almost two years before they did the NWO thing. It was Hall and Nash that kicked it off. We've covered that. And Hogan was riding around Universal Studios at a fucking rented goddamn convertible with Jimmy Hart on a megaphone trying to get people to come to the fucking tapings. That was Disney, not Universal. Disney, you know, I'm sorry. Universal was Russo's other fucking project he talked himself into for the next company he killed. So then, <laughs> then Russo is telling the 
audience here on Dark Side uh, how he told Vince McMahon the way that it was going to be. I told Vince. And I've heard that same pitch, but it was groveling and whining to Vince. It wasn't, I'm, it wasn't laying the law down to Vince McMahon. It was, but Vince, that's too wrestling. People don't want the wrestling. And Crash TV, he described as short match, backstage fight, vignette, short match, fight in locker room, vignette. What does that sound like? I don't huh? know. I don't know what. That sounds like the same thing we see on Wednesday nights because of fucking Mark from the goddamn 90s is booking a television show today. His influence lives on. And it's a shits today like it was then because we've all seen it. And it's nothing different. And it doesn't take any talent to just do that. Let's just let everybody fight. It's been tried since with everybody. Even the WWE still does some of that shit because they've got in their patterns, but they're drawing huge ratings for the time these days. But everything that he did has been copied and done, not only by himself in TNA, but by all the other marks for that time in wrestling that had gotten a business and become either wrestlers or promoters. And it's never fucking worked. Because you don't have Austin and Rock and Taker and Foley. And you don't have the standing of the top company and an unlimited budget. Well, Tony does not the standing, but the unlimited budget. But this shit has never worked without stars and a guy like Vince McMahon controlling it and running the fucking business. Without one guy clearly in charge, you got what you got here was a bunch of clueless executives, half of them that didn't want wrestling in TBS or on TBS, hiring a bunch of people that were good salesmen of themselves and all fought with each other, Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff, Vince Russo, because they all were just out for themselves and how to get the fucking biggest buck out of the billionaire. Sounds familiar. We're flashing back 25 years later today. But it, it, that's what, again, that's what you got from Russo. Ideas. Everybody says that. Yeah, he got plenty, even the people that try to be nice to him. Yeah, oh, he had plenty of ideas. Or nice about him, not knock him. Yeah, he had a lot of ideas. He had, yeah, fight in the bathroom. I had that idea in third grade. So... Then Dave says that WCW in 1999 was headed to the iceberg and TBS sends Bischoff home in 99 because he's got too big for his britches. What was, what was the reason they sent him home? I can't even remember that time. I Did can't you? even remember. I was By that point, before Russo even got there, I stopped watching WCW every week. But I mean, they've written books about this, so it yeah. was some goddamn, you know, hey, Rube, that he got into with the executives. and. At the same time, here comes this other knucklehead that can sell him a bill of goods. They've sent Eric home. So here's the fucking guy that they have been led to believe is responsible for the WWF success, Vince Russo, who tried to get, apparently now his story is, I know when they added SmackDown, he went in and tried to get a big raise. 
which Vince didn't pay you by the fucking show. He paid you by the job. You wrote one show or 20 shows. You didn't really write any shows most of the time because he was fucking taking your papers and doing it the way he wanted anyway. So Vince wants a raise, and now apparently he wanted to move out of town closer to his wife's family, which is apparently in and around the Evansville, Indiana environs. Yeah, the raise is one thing. I could see the argument yeah. for that if you're him, but not, I want a raise, and also, I'm moving to Indiana. Yeah, fuck you. He was mad me and Bruce were all the way up in Monroe. Right? Like, Goddamn, pal, you need to be closer to the office. We can't afford it. And so this... <laughs> This idiot wants to move to Indiana. Vince says, hire a nanny. And considering his kids were little ragamuffins, maybe he should have. They'd have been brought up better. But anyway, so that's when Vince stabbed Vince Russo, stabs Vince McMahon in the back and makes the under-the-table, behind-the-scenes deal to go to WCW, which, after about six to nine months, I'm betting Vince McMahon was like, oh, thank God he did that. It was it, it, probably Vince McMahon was kicking himself because he didn't have the idea to send Russo down there. But a lot of people, I mean, I don't know if people still talk about this. Back in the day, they thought that because of the results and how bad the TV was, that it may have been an intentional thing that Vince McMahon sent yes. him there <laughs> to kill the company, right? You've yes. heard that. Yes. And there is precedent in wrestling. Remember Bill Watts paid Grizzly Smith to keep booking for Jack Curtis and, and uh George Culkin, when he was booking for the opposition in Mississippi because he was running him out of business, doing his best. But at the time, yes, they thought that. But in a, no, because obviously I knew I was had just come to Louisville, but obviously was talking to people in the office every day, and I got the scoop immediately. Hey, did you hear what Vince did? He fucking called Vince McMahon. He made the deal when Vince McMahon was in England and didn't know what the fuck was going on, and then Vince McMahon flies back to the Raw show at the Meadowlands about 45 minutes away from Russo's house, and Russo called him on the phone and told him he wasn't coming. Didn't even have the goddamn nerve, the guts, the balls, or anything to come down and look him in the eye and say, well, I'm soaking Atlanta for a bunch of money, but thank you for the opportunity, Vince. So anyway. So now... <laughs> And by the way, have you noticed Dave's nose is looking like W.C. Fields in his final days? Oh, I'm sorry, but he stop could be <laughs> just moments away from a Christmas Day fucking occurrence. Anyway. Oh, come on. Come um, on. So Russo claims the ratings went up. <laughs> the statistics say otherwise, and that's been proven. And then TBS sent Russo home after three months. What was the first thing they sent him home for? God, I can't remember because it was musical chairs at that point. Because they had no control over these wild fucking ragamuffins and hooligans that they had hired to run this company. Yeah, I'm not sure because remember when he got there, you didn't actually see him. You just started hearing his voice. People would walk into a room and yes. the camera would be where he was and they'd be having a meeting with was supposed to be the powers that be, but everyone would get confused and call them the powers to be, which doesn't make too much sense. Or to be or not to be. And see, again, this, this all came from his, his video store because since it failed and went out of business, he had plenty of time when he had no customers to sit there and watch all these rotten independent art films 
and steal scenes out of them. So Turner Broadcasting then apparently thought that Bischoff could oversee Russo like Vince McMahon did, because that's one of the things that they were then hearing was, well, Vince McMahon was the filter for this fucking giant open sewer of ideas. And of course, then Jeff Jarrett, he realized Eric Bischoff and Vince Russo together were never going to work because neither one of them Russo's opinion of wrestling is complete shit. Anybody can do it, and it takes a genius writer to make anything good. Bischoff's opinion of wrestling was... I'm a genius, and I did it. (laughs) I'm a genius, and I invented it. And the truth, of course, lies down the block and around the corner. Lance Storm mentioned, and this is true, Russo wanted to make him Bischoff's illegitimate son. And he pointed out, he's like 10 years older than I am. And Bischoff's quote in his, uh, again, his, the, his way with prose, it became apparent to me Vince Russo was void of any creative instincts. So then, together they come up with the Millionaire's Club versus the Young Blood, which remember, uh, well, I'm sure you weren't watching, but Russo tried to redo in TNA with the main event Mafia, when of Sting and Angle and Nash and every big name, like five or six of them in a group, and then the the young guys that were supposed to break through and become stars because of that, AJ Styles and Samoa Joe, and uh, they, they certainly did. They broke through and became stars in other fucking companies. Did, did, tell me what you hated about the Millionaire's Club versus the Young Blood as a concept, and then I will explain to everyone in detail why it's the shits. I didn't watch too much of it in real time. Again, WCW drove me off in early to mid-99, and I wasn't really interested. And then I tried to check it out again when Russo came in, but it became, whatever WCW was, and it wasn't very good at that point, it became an off-brand version of WWE's Attitude Era TV, which we now know a lot of it was the Russo style. With Vince McMahon as an editor, this was without that. So it was really, really bad TV, and the new blood, I mean, it didn't really work out for anyone, did it? The young blood. The young Not blood. new blood, just young blood. Well, and that's the whole point. And it, it, with, as with anything, in there, there was a germ of a concept. And the idea was Russo was always trying to push because he would only listen to the smart fans because the smart fans were the ones who knew he existed. And then later when he was, because he was never going to be on television as anything other than like the magazine editor. He made a few shows in WWF or he did commentary for a little while on WWF New York. Jesus Christ. But the smart fans were the only ones he listened to. He didn't consider the audience as a whole, which again... Even though more were smart, a lot of people were smart, but didn't live their goddamn life about this stuff. And so they didn't know every twist and turn and insider reference. So Russo would get the idea that all the fans were in a backlash against all the stars, all the accepted stars, the big stars, the big names. And these young guys who are ready because the old guys won't put them over in fake matches. That's why that these young guys are pissed off. I mean, he came out and basically told people that. 
And then he would have the young guys fight the established guys. But the problem with that was you had on one side a group of the biggest names in fucking wrestling, and on the other side a group of not big fucking names. And so it didn't work. You don't get people over in groups, in mass, in goddamn clumps. The way you do it is by involving younger guys, talented guys that the people are starting to take to, with the established guys, either as partners or against them, where you can see this young guy on his own, not in another group of young guys, hanging with the, the people that you truly know and believe are main event stars. And whether it's a tag team partner, whether they break up or not, you've elevated that guy to a main event spot. Or if it's a an opponent, the star opponent, and, and then he eventually gets a win, elevates the younger guy. And as, as well, you don't, just because the, maybe the WCW fans, they were in a backlash in some element then, even still because of the WWF X names that had taken over. In the South, they got a lot of fucking feedback that we don't want the fucking WWF guys. We want Ric Flair. We want Sting. So you didn't just throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, we're not going to use any of the legends or we're going to beat all the legends. You use guys that the audience still wanted and still appreciated as legends like Flair, who Bischoff didn't fucking like. But to people, they were not hooting even in 1999 or 2000 to get rid of Ric Flair. They were saying that most of the creative he was involved in was fucking rotten. But the fans were not clamoring fuck Ric Flair, so Ric Flair could have made a younger guy with either a job or an association with this guy. But Russo wants to do this gang warfare bullshit. And that meant that the names stayed names, and the young guys never had a chance. What do you think about that logic? It makes perfect sense, and again, I didn't care. But, you know, the other thing is, Jeff Jarrett was really good in this special, but it did need to be pointed out he was Russo's best friend. And he's the one who really propped up Russo more than anyone coming out of this. So it does need to be pointed out that he's been like Russo's guy. They, yeah. made, it, they made it sound like he was just, it just happened to be him in this situation. Well, I can say sometimes you consider people your best friend for a period of time, and then they turn out to be complete weasels. And since Jeff has figured that out now, you know, you can't hold it against him for saying that, not wanting to say in 2023, yeah, I was a friend of this fucking guy's. He didn't want to get any on him now. But did you like when Russo said, well, Bischoff wanted to be in charge, so I called Brad Siegel at TBS and told him to put Eric Bischoff in charge. Like, he's telling, he's always telling everybody what to do. So... <sighs> Again, the idea was Jeff Jarrett was the WCW champion, and, and he says he was to face multiple of the legends and beat them and then drop the belt to Booker T. And I believe that was the plan. Pretty much throughout this whole thing, you can believe that's what they were intending to do, or most of them. 
And he was to get the last win over Hogan. And that's where, again, Russo keeps saying, I wrote Hogan very strong, but he wouldn't win. How did he write him strong? He didn't have shit to do with the way matches were put together. He could put bullet points down, like Scott Steiner runs in with a fucking tank. But I can tell you from experience, even in TNA, the guys when putting matches together always threw the majority of his fucking suggestions for matches out. He could come up with the fucking formats and the finishes, but the matches were up to the boys, and that's the problem is Hogan was in this too. A noted truth teller if ever there was one. So he's the only person not obviously in the documentary, not speaking to the filmmakers here, so everyone else has their side represented but Hogan. Although I guess you could say Bischoff in a sense. He was, uh, his side was partially represented when they had tape of him on Bubba the Love Sponge, but they couldn't say Bubba the Love Sponge's name, I guess. So they just said a Tampa radio show. But that's the thing. The bone of contention was Hulk Hogan had creative control. Russo wanted Jarrett to beat Hogan and then drop the thing to Booker T. Bischoff being Hogan's buddy and knowing that they would do business together after this fucking Turner Broadcasting thing immolated or combusted or whatever it did, um, he was on Hulk's side. And plus, what the fuck? Why would anybody agree with Russo? So Russo says he keeps rewriting the script to have Hogan wipe out more people. And Bischoff's story is Russo didn't get to vote. This is a quote. He didn't get to vote. He thought he did, but he didn't. So everybody's story comes to shit here because the night of the show, Bischoff and Hogan tell Russo that Hogan's winning. He's using his creative control, and they want Jeff Jarrett to throw the match. And then Hogan will storm out mad. And then WCW will realize that Hogan wasn't coming back. So WCW would vacate the title and have a tournament for the new world champion. And the last two guys in the tournament would face each other at Halloween Havoc, where Hulk Hogan would reappear and say, uh-uh, I still have the belt. And if you want this, you've got to beat me. This is the idea. <laughs> that Eric Bischoff is giving you with a straight face that that's what they wanted to do on purpose. He's acting like this was going to be a great fucking idea. It was the blind leading the blind. And 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 Hogan knew how to take advantage of the whole thing. Yeah, then because, yeah, Hogan's going to beat everybody and not have to work. He'll get six months off and beat everybody. And then Russo flips his shit because I rewrote this show twice. Oh, poor baby. And Bischoff calls Brad Siegel, the president of TBS, and he said, go with Bischoff's idea, which, Jesus, that's why TBS couldn't run a wrestling company and why Vince won the war. Because they would back up an idea like that because it was Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff. So then Russo gets mad and he's determined to do something else. 
And again, he's in 1995, he was running a failing video store. And five years later, he's given Hulk Hogan ultimatums. The reason why that he couldn't get anything done is because nobody took him fucking seriously. Because once you sat in a fucking room with this fucking guy for 10 minutes, if you were in the wrestling business, you knew that he was as full of shit as Aunt Lola's Christmas turkeys. And nobody was taking him seriously. Bischoff, in 1993, had been a C-string announcer. But they gave him the job first, and he got Hogan's ear. And of anybody, of anybody in the whole fucking equation, you would listen to Hulk Hogan, the biggest wrestling star on the planet at one time, except for the fact that he's only going to do whatever benefits him. And he's going to work the people who are on his side into thinking that it helps them too. So this is the ultimate heel program. So Russo pitches it to Jeff Jarrett, bro, this is what we're doing. And they're trying to work the boys, not even the, the, the fans are just going to be fucking puzzled, but they're trying to work the boys. So he tells Jeff Jarrett that Hogan won't do the job and just lay down, just lay down in the middle of the ring for him. Is it ever a good idea to work the locker room? No. Well, all right. Digression here for a second to work the overall locker room sometimes so that they don't spill the goddamn beans with their running their dick lickers on social media or Twitter or Facebook or whatever the fuck about not telling them things that they don't need to know. Yes, you should do that. It used to, the locker room could know things weeks in advance and the fans would never know a thing. And now it's instantaneous. So I think the locker room should not ever be told shit anymore that they don't absolutely need to know. But I don't think you should lie to the locker room about an angle that you're doing on your fucking show that would get heat if the boys believe it, that they would hate one or more of the top fucking stars in the company. So anyway, in trying to work the boys, he just tells Jeff to lay down, and Jeff is dumbfounded. And he charitably said the story was not well thought out and didn't make any sense. And he explained all the reasons and that everybody loses. And then he was saying, do I really want to be a part of this mess? And my father and my grandmother showed a picture of Teeny with Nick and Roy. He's like, do I, you know, do I jump Hulk Hogan and make him actually beat me? Or, you know... Then he finally just got disgusted enough. Let's just get it over with. It's just, and that's the thing. Again, Russo did not care because he always wanted everybody to know that wrestling was fake so that his ridiculously and unfortunately it, amateurishly inflated ego could take credit for everything. He's like, he's like Stan Lee. Think about this, Brian. Stan Lee and Vince Russo wrote multiple exclamation points, randomly capitalized words, were all about catchphrases, 
and stole Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko's credit. Vince Russo grew up reading Marvel comics. He, he wrote like Stan Lee. Anyway. You know, I know a lot of people don't like Stan Lee as much as they used to. And like you said, he ripped off <laughs> some artists. But I don't think it's fair to put him in the but same No, league. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But well, see, that's the thing. Vince Russo was a poor imitation of Stan Lee, like he was a poor imitation of everything else he tried to do. He got the superficial, you know, gist of something, but he never understood anything. He just did it for the stupidest people that he could find. So, and why was Russo at ringside when Jeff was laying down? Because he had put, he had to be in the spotlight and he had made himself an authority figure there. And people wonder what the fuck happened to WCW. You got this goddamn pop-eyed, buggy whip-armed fucking idiot strutting around with his crooked walk and broing everybody and wearing a goddamn New York t-shirt and telling people what the fuck to do. And people started going, what the fuck is this? And Jeff Jarrett had a great analysis of Wrestling has always been about blurring the lines, what's real, what's not, but if you confuse them, you lose them. And that's all that Russo's shit was, was confusing. And at least Vince McMahon kept focus on the main things. Jim Ross could tell you what was going on with Austin Rock and Taker. And the this television studio could do these packages that zeroed in on the fucking main issues and created the emotion. And he was just spitting things out, throwing slop out of a bucket. So anyway. You know, and again, to him at ringside, you asked about that before. Everything at this point, way too often, was a play on Montreal. Oh, yeah, they were still doing that. A screw job or a ring yeah. the bell or the authority figure intervenes. Yeah. He's laying uh, down. Pin him. Come on. This is what yeah. I want. So Russo said that at that all he cared about was the plan working exactly the same way I laid it out. It's all part of the story. So Hogan pins Jeff. Jeff walks out. Bischoff said it went according to plan, like it had been good to that point. He still thinks that part was good. And then here's the thing. Bischoff and Hogan, and they really do, they leave the show and go to the airport, get on the plane, they're celebrating, they're toasting each other. They've been part of the worst, phoniest, rottenest match slash angle in wrestling history. But back at the show, Russo was still at work. And Bischoff, and I believe this was the story at the time, contemporaneously, as they say, that both his and Hogan's phones blew up when they landed and found out what Russo had done. But they said they wanted to make people believe it, so that's why that Hogan and Bischoff left the building before the show was over. What does Bischoff have to do with that? Why would people not believe it? If Hogan left, that's fine. Why did Bischoff have to leave? What kind of an executive leaves the show before it's over to begin with? You can just tell people on the air he left and went to the airport or the medical facility. 
or whatever, right? He really left because he didn't give a shit. He wanted to go get on a plane with his buddy Hulk and drink champagne out of a stewardess's slipper. And by the way, for the record, maybe the most ridiculous reenactments on this episode, whoever they had put oh, yeah. Bischoff in that wig <laughs> and Hogan with no arms cheering on the fucking plane with the drinks. It's so stupid at this point. Oh, but it, well, they, they had footage of all these idiots doing this shit anyway. They didn't need to reenact it. So Russo went back out after they really left. And again, Bischoff had no reason to leave other than his ego and he didn't give a shit. But Russo went out and cut a promo again, once again, thinking he's the center of everything. He was important enough to do this and get away with it. Not only in terms of coming out and, and exposing the business on WCW's own show without anybody in charge knowing what he was going to say, but also slandering Hulk Hogan like Vince Russo is now important enough. Hogan made, as they said, um, into seven figures off of Russo cutting that promo in the settlement with TBS. And he again pissed off everybody. The fans are going, what the fuck is this fucking guy out there again for doing this shit? And the wrestlers are like, look at this insufferable cunt putting him fucking self on television again. And then Russo said, every promo I've ever cut, I don't know what I'm going to say. That material writes itself. He said, in the moment, that's real. Here's where the story is. Here's where my character is. Go. Jesus Christ, he thinks he's De Niro. Again, I ask you, when did anybody even say, Wow, that was a pretty good wrestling promo from this fucking clown. No, I mean, the one they showed with him going after Hogan after Hogan left the building, he definitely seemed like into it and passionate. Yes. Eddie and shit and goddamn and that son of yeah. a bitch. And that's the one that cost him and, a few million dollars. Yes. <laughs> and, but just, and he goes out and he used, and that's before you used profanity, especially all that profanity. In the same promo, even on pay-per-view. And he goes out and he does that. It certainly got attention. I don't know if anybody's ever said it was good. It certainly, it got attention. But then he did it to make himself a big deal. And put himself on par with Hulk Hogan in front of fans who were asking, what the fuck? And... At that point, Hogan said, well, I'm going to sue. And of course, he, he. they said, oh, well, Russo made a big deal. The judge threw it out, and the second judge wouldn't take the appeal, blah, blah, blah. Hogan didn't think he was going to get money for slander from Vince Russo. He sued for slander and breach of contract because he knew that TBS They'd had a history since they bought the company. They would settle lawsuits for discrimination. They would settle lawsuits for wrongful termination. They would settle lawsuits for whatever the fuck. Because they just didn't want to fucking take a chance on paying a judgment. So they would give everybody money. And he got it. Millions of dollars. And here's another... Do you think... Brian, there were executives and forces within 
TBS that wanted to get rid of the wrestling company even when it was profitable, correct? Always, yes. Do you think that now that it was losing money at a fucking record pace, $60 million in the year 2000, do you think that anybody also said in a closed-door meeting, and fuck, now Hogan's suing us, we're going to have to pay him millions, can't we dump this fucking company? That's the thing, and everyone always points fingers at everyone else about who killed WCW. It wasn't me, it was the executives. Listen, if all of a sudden Vince Russo went in there and the ratings went up and they started making money hand over fist, WCW would have still been in business. The exact opposite happened. And as a lot of different people, they get blamed for it. But again, it wouldn't have gotten to that point if the ratings hadn't gone down and if they had found a way to make it somewhat profitable, they blew it. They blew the opportunity they had. Under Vince Russo and Eric Bischoff, they gave them more than enough money losses, lawsuits, and trouble in general to give the executives in Turner Broadcasting that wanted ammunition against the wrestling company all they needed. And that was what happened. But anyway, so... Russo cusses like he's got Tourette's and announces the new main event that night is Jeff Jarrett versus Booker T for the real WCW title because Hogan's not the champion or whatever the fuck. And Lance Storm is like, they're, they're all sitting watching the monitor. Is this the plan? What the hell is going on here? And Russo said he'd had it up to here with the wrestling shit. So Booker beat Jeff and Russo thought because he said that that was the real title and Hogan's was fake, that the fans would just buy it. And he really believed that it, it Russo said it was working a thousand percent. And all I'm reading is Vince Russo finally put Hulk Hogan in his place. Did you love that little exchange? Well, it showed you what his audience, what audience he was looking to, I guess I should say, for support. That's exactly what he would read the five people that said, good for Vince Russo for putting Hulk Hogan and think that that was goddamn a genius piece of business that people have been clamoring for. He is a hero in his own mind. So Russo says everything that happened was the way it was laid out. Bischoff calls bullshit. Nobody knew about the promo. Russo calls double bullshit. Bischoff says that's where the pathological part and pathological liar comes from. Hogan gets on Bubba's show and calls Russo a jack-off and a very stupid, stupid man. And, and Russo says the judge didn't buy the libel part because it was a wrestling angle. And since Russo thought that Hulk Hogan and Vince Russo are characters, bro... And that's, a, that's another insight. He always thought wrestlers were actors in tights. And that's why the guys that knew better hated him and the modern kids fell for it. Because they thought they were going to be movie stars. And Bischoff points out that if Russo was a character and took unprofessional liberties with another performer, then that wouldn't make it okay. But he has a problem with reality. So this, again, this is the greatest heel program. And then Uncle Dave chimes in with, I quote, I'm trying to discuss what two dishonest people say about something from 20 years ago. And then, and then Bischoff Dave, goes after Dave. 
Yes, and he's and so calls him a useful idiot. He's a useful idiot. Triple A or Triple H. Um, fucking Hulk Hogan. I, I abbreviated Hulk Hogan settles with Turner for the fucking money. And Jeff Jarrett summed up Hulk Hogan, a business that gave him everything. That's what he gave back. The most self-centered, egotistical power play that only benefited Hulk. Vince McMahon mm. buys WCW out from under Bischoff. He's just mad Hogan didn't want to lose to him. Well, it would have been nice if he'd got it on the resume. Yeah, the same way Austin didn't want to lose to him. <laughs> well, I've... hey, Jerry Jarrett paid Hulk. <laughs> uh, you know, at least Borden, he paid Austin. Anyway, um, did you hear when, when they talked about Turner Broadcasting, Bischoff was really going to buy, allegedly, and we were hearing about it, going to buy the company for tens of millions of dollars with this, you know, firm that he had found to put up some money. But Turner executives canceled the TV shows, the time slots. They can buy, you can buy WCW, but we're not going to carry wrestling on the air, which made the company worthless. So they dumped it to Vince for $4 million. And Dave said that was equal to buying Manhattan for $25. It was 24. It was $24, Dave. For heaven's sake, you ought to be. I hope he does a retraction on that or a correction. We'll see. I... <laughs> well, think of put in the inflation calculator. When was the purchase of Manhattan Island? What was that? 1670 something, maybe? Put in the inflation calculator $24 to uh, present day and see how much that that's a lot of money. Yeah, hold on. The first one doesn't go back past 1913. Oh, well, no, it, $24. Yeah, this this was, one doesn't go to past 1914. Inflation no, calculator, what year? 16? 16, let's say 1675, just to be a rough, because 1913, $25 wouldn't even have got you the Bronx. Okay, so what are you asking for in 1675 money? $24. $24 $1675 is worth $2,034.06 today. Well, now that seems a little low. It does. It seems like that ought to be worth at least $27, $30 million. That seems a bit high. All right. Well, anyway, uh, the closing statement on this program was from Vince Russo. His closing words, do you know how little this shit matters? It's a form of entertainment. And then my DVR at that point committed suicide. It just froze up. It said, I don't want you to even hear any more of this. I care too much about you, Jim. I think anybody, if you watch this show, you may not know any more about Bash at the Beach or you may not know who to believe, but you will understand now why I would willingly chainsaw this motherfucker's head off if we were alone in the woods together. I think everybody has now figured that out, haven't they? He seems somewhat unbearable, especially if you care about professional wrestling. Again, he seems to have a lot of grievances because he doesn't have a job in wrestling and then tells you that he hates wrestling. Hates the people in wrestling. He's too good for wrestling. And has refused to do anything else for the last 20 years. In his eyes, I guess he was just really good at it for a few years. 
25 years ago. I don't know, but Dark Side of the Ring. Hell, a lot of people could say that about sex. An interesting season of Dark Side of the Ring. What is that? One more episode, right? Marty Jannetty? Marty Jannetty. They're going out with a bang. Well, Jim, after Dark Side of the Ring this week, it may be difficult to watch that episode for anyone who hasn't seen it yet to have to hear all that. But maybe if you just want to get the information, you can watch it with closed captioning on and listen to something else with your Raycons. Well, that, you know, that's true because taking away the one of the senses would make this the people on this program more palatable. If you couldn't see the ugliness of Uncle Dave or the treachery of Russo or the smarminess of Bischoff, if you couldn't see him or if you couldn't hear him, if you were looking at him but you couldn't hear him, maybe that would be even better because the voices yeah. are so grating. That's what I was saying. Yeah, well, I'm just saying I'm mulling it over in my head, see? I'm just saying in one way or another, just either don't look at him or don't listen to him. I didn't say anything about taking away the listener's sight. I said, let's well, divert the hearing somewhere else. Some people may have wanted to gouge their eyeballs out of their head while this program was on. And, and you can't deny those people their opportunity. But it'd probably be less painful if you just stuck something in your ears. I'm not even talking about a screwdriver or a railroad spike. I'm talking about the everyday wireless earbuds from Raycon, because everybody knows they don't have any wires. We established that on the last commercial we did for them. That way you don't walk around looking like a fucking Martian or a robot or somebody with wires hanging out of your ears. Well, that many, just make you look like an idiot. Well, no, many people have had wired earbuds and probably yeah, still do, well, but Raycon's like a step up. That's right. You need to step up or else why are you going to get knocked out? Cause you know that's it. When somebody, when somebody's walking down the street, they got to... what's the matter with you? Oh, I'm trying to step up. I'm sorry. Step up or get knocked out. If you're walking down the street with those strings hanging out of your head, you look like an idiot, and somebody ought to come up and snatch those strings and punch you right in the face. What you need to do is you need to surreptitiously stick these wireless earbuds in your ears. Nobody's even going to know that they're there. And then you can be bopping out to some Led Zeppelin or maybe some Skinnerd, and somebody can come up to you on the street and say something to you, and you don't, you don't say anything. You don't even acknowledge they're there because you're listening to your own soundtrack in your head. And they'll say something else, and you'll ignore them, and then they'll punch you in the fucking face for being rude and ignoring them. Well, no. But at least you'll be hearing good quality music and you'll be happy right up until the moment of impact. And don't forget, actually, let's take that back. You do not have to worry about getting punched in the face because there's awareness mode, so you'll be aware of who's around you. And of course, you may be enjoying the wonderful tunes or sounds that you get on your Raycon earbuds, but you'll be aware well, enough to prevent strangers no, from not, punching you in the face. Not unless you're a, you've used the earbud tap function to toggle onto the awareness mode if you're not aware enough to become aware and know you need to be aware then you'll be unaware well that's why and we're letting boom, everyone know just happened that's why we're letting everyone know this is like a public service announcement for all raycon users well we can't wet nurse these people and just lead them through it by the fucking ear you're gonna have to toggle your own awareness mode if you want to avoid getting punched in the face if you wear raycon wireless earbuds no. but you should wear them hyperbolically metaphorically you do not have to worry about the risk of being punched in the face just because you're wearing the wonderful raycon earbuds but only if you ignore people because you don't toggle the awareness mode it could just See, be because just you're make rude. sure you're aware it could if you're ignoring people it could just be you're rude it has nothing to do with raycon sometimes they sneak up on you the rude people yes so you need to fucking be aware 
And I'll tell you right now, also, you can stay calm with these things. You put in like some some of the the nice white noise or you put in the classical music and you meditate. Or if you want to exercise, you put in the upbeat music to pump you up and then you can go out there and and pump the iron. And or you can put in the rock and roll. And, and if you go out in a field and you find some of those mushrooms that grow in the middle of cow pies and chew a bunch of them, you'll hear colors and you'll see all you'll take a vacation in your head. Because well, the summertime is here, it's vacation time. That's what they're saying on this copy. And you need to get in a vacation state of mind. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So well, let's just you specify. You put in the wireless earbuds, that's, you listen to some rock and roll music, and eat some mushrooms growing no, in No, that's shit, not in the copy. That's not in the copy. And you'll take your own vacation. You don't have to go anywhere. Raycon is for responsible adults. And responsible and, adults and can so do their thing. covered mushrooms. Well, hold on now. There's nothing... Raycon does not endorse mushrooms. Raycon has nothing to do with mushrooms other than you may potentially ingest them and have the Raycon earbuds in your ear, but they're two separate things. And that's totally up to you. It's not their responsibility. That's right. It's not in the copy either. Let's just specify that. They did not write any of that. None of this is in the copy, but they do have a 32-hour battery life, eight hours of playtime. I get you can even, can you plug other small household appliances into these earbuds and power them as well? Uh, I don't believe so, no. But you don't have to worry about power outages because they got batteries. So if you get hit by lightning and your electricity goes out, these things, the battery power will come right up and your corpse will still be playing good quality music or wonderful podcasts when they find you and scoop you up. There is no guarantee that these will continue working after the user is hit by lightning if the earbuds are in the user's ear. But do you think that anybody's going to care at that point? They're going to say, well... We lost fucking Frank, but goddamn, I'm going to get a refund on those Raycons. Well, I'm pretty sure the family would care about the electrocuted dead family member. Well, yeah, but you're talking about, you know, not being able to guarantee that these things will withstand a direct hit by lightning if they're in your ears. I would think if that happens, you got other things to worry about than fucking bothering the Raycon people about goddamn getting a refund. Well, speaking of other things to worry about, I don't know why we're worrying about any of this. We should be worrying about the wonderful music and, of course, podcasts, all sorts of things you can listen to with Raycon earbuds in your ears. They're worth it. They're great. Very yeah. popular here in the house. You can make phone calls and listen to them on these things also, from what I understand. That's right. Ken, what happens if, if, you, uh, if your phone is out of order? Your like mine was. Order. If your phone is out of order like mine was a few weeks ago, then do you do you get the, the same tone that I got when I tried to get a dial tone? Do you get the... Oh, I don't know if Raycon's connecting with landlines. I believe it would be through Bluetooth connection with most cellular telephones. Well, even whether you have blue teeth, folks, or whether you have green teeth, brown teeth, or dentures, it doesn't matter. The everyday earbuds will figure out a way to play you some wonderful music or distracting podcasts or motivational audio of any kind. And right now, they start at half the price of other premium audio brands, and you can even save more money. Because if you go right now to buy Raycon, that's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N, buyraycon.com slash J-C-E, you're going to get 15% off their already incredibly low prices. Anything you want at buyraycon.com. Besides, of course, the technical crew, they stay there. But anything for sale on the site, 15% off if you go to buyraycon.com slash JCE. And that's just for 
you guys, because me and Brian want to make sure that you hear fine music up until either you get punched in the face or struck by lightning. Raycon. That's right. And Jim, speaking of music, of course, when we talk about wrestling and music or the rock and roll. When we talk about wrestling. Wrestling. But when we talk about the rock and roll, as you put it earlier, and music. Well, that is music. And wrestling, excuse me. Many people will remember, of course, exotic Adrian Street and his glam rock music. And of course, his personality, which we got to see here in Memphis and Mid-South and all throughout the Southeast. And of course, news this past week that Adrian Street has passed away. Well, we wanted to have some fun uh, at the top of the program first and take the piss out of some people that deserved it before we got to this topic, because it was, I guess, Monday, I heard the news. I don't know whether it was Sunday that he passed or, or what, but it's been a couple of days as we're recording now. And it really, I just didn't, it hit me worse on Monday um, hearing that because not only was Adrian a great wrestler in person, but it's kind of like that was the highlight of my rookie year in wrestling was managing Adrian and getting to travel with Adrian and Linda. And, and it, you know, it felt like a part of me there. You know what I mean? Because that was uh, without a doubt. I mean, all respect to the other people that I'd managed first, Jesse Barr, he was about as green as I was just almost. And Mike Boyette, bless him you know, had his, his own things going on with his apocalypse gimmick and everything. We've talked about that, but I got to spend time with Adrian and Linda also, because as we'll talk about Dundee being the booker and work at a program with him, I got to be featured in more important matches, which was a learning experience as well as just riding in the car with Adrian and Linda was not only so much fun, but I could learn even though Adrian had spent his entire career in in the UK and it was a different style and different business over there, there's some things that are universal and just learning how a veteran thought about things was so important at that point in time because I'd only been to business not even six months. And anyway, I know we we did a clip on Adrian. It's on the YouTube channel. It's been quite a while ago. But I know it's out there because somebody retweeted it. So I don't know if we're going to repeat ourselves here or if anybody wants to check that out also. There may be different stuff. I can't remember what we said. But I get, you know, where do you start with with a guy? Adrian, he wrote, like, what was it, seven books on his own life. It was a seven-volume series. Just a fascinating fucking guy from start to finish. And I know a lot of people have seen the gimmick and, They've seen his matches, and, you know, that was interesting enough, but his entire life story that he actually did, his father worked in the coal mines. There's that famous picture of him in gimmick in front of his dad and his dad's co-workers at the entrance to the coal mine, but he actually did a little bit of it himself and decided he didn't want to, and he was way undersized in terms of height for even the British wrestlers of of the time. And Bill Dundee went through kind of the same thing in Australia, you know, a few years later. But in the early 60s, Adrian was only like 5'6", five, 5'7", five, maybe. 
but at least he had that big chest and the big, you know, shoulder spread and upper body and, and he took care of himself and he could, you know, he could fit the fucking picture, but he overcame that. And with the gimmick, which was revolutionary, not only in wrestling, but also he always maintained and, and the time period kind of works that he had an influence on glam rock in England and guys like Mark Bolin and T-Rex because he was starting to do that shit at that point in time. And, you know, getting on the outs with the um, uh, joint promotions, the establishment in wrestling at the time in the 70s, after he had been a big star, not only as a single, but he and Bobby Barnes as, as the Hells Angels. And then he ended up working outlaw and running his own shows and promoting his own stuff. And, of course, that was ended up like, you know, most outlaw promotions do, and he didn't make a fortune at it, which is why he came to America, because he couldn't get booked for the establishment, even though he was such a name, because he had, he'd gone outlaw when he felt that they were mistreating him. And he was not a fan of Big Daddies, by any stretch of the imagination. But that, um, he just, he was just a fucking interesting and completely opposite of the gimmick, but at the same time, he kind of was the gimmick too. Does, does that make any sense, Brian? Did you ever meet Adrian? Never met him in person, spoke to him. He was on 605 a few years back to promote the reissue of his album, and we talked a lot about wrestling history and stuff. He, he was, again, he was outrageous in his own way as a person but he was not like a heel or vicious or whatever as his wrestling gimmick. But I mean, just he was a tremendous artist. I've told the story about you give him a couple pieces of colored chalk and 30 minutes in the high school locker room at one of these spot shows. And he could draw this giant portrait of the, like the sheep herders carrying their flag. And you would, it would be so, detailed that it would take you a second to notice that their flagpole was Luke Williams's giant four foot long throbbing dick with a big vein on the side of it. And, but he was an amazing artist and he and Linda together, they were together. They've been together over 50 years. Um, they not only made their own gear, all those outfits and everything, but they started making gear for other people too, after Adrian retired. And they also made, at one point when they were living in Tennessee, I went over to pick them up because that was the deal. When, when Adrian and Linda had both come to the United States, the first place I think they worked was Los Angeles, right? In the dying days of that promotion, late 81. And a lot of it was Lucha at that point. I think they'd been to Mexico, but then they came from there to, to Tennessee and to drop two people in the middle of the Tennessee territory that had hardly ever driven in the United States, much less, you know, down South. I said, look, I'll drive. You guys just ride with me and Adrian, you know, talk to me, teach me, entertain me, tickle me, whatever. So I would drive because I'd been in this territory, you know, as a photographer, I knew where we were going. So I'd drive and Adrian would talk and poor Linda was quiet. She would generally talk just whenever Adrian quit for a minute. But what they lived, they rented this apartment 
at this place at the foot of Sanders Ferry Road in Hendersonville. And several miles up the road was where you got into the part at Old Hickory Lake where all the country music stars, Johnny Cash, everybody lived, and Lawler had a big house up there. So one day I'm going to pick up Adrian and Linda, and I turn onto Sanders Ferry Road, and I'm there's Lawler coming the other direction, and he sees me, and I see him. I'm driving up the hill. And we got the show that night, and I saw him. He said, hey, what were you doing on my street today? I said, I was picking up my street. Brumch. Oh, boy. Anyway, maybe now I know why he didn't book me better. <laughs> so anyway, um, I, w- I went to their apartment one day. They had made their own dishes. Linda did, they both I guess, did pottery, and they had made like their own set of dishes. I said, fuck, if you guys had a farm... You could bank your entire paycheck. They made everything. It was amazing. But just, you know, a fascinating guy. And he would tell me just, you know, stories about English wrestling, British wrestling, some of the personalities. That's where I picked up, you know, some of the Cockney rhyming slang. And, you know, first kind of got, I don't know if I would have been able to understand everything that Davy Boy Smith said if I hadn't managed Adrian, you know, before that, but he's like, he didn't like working with Mark Rocco, not because he didn't like Mark Rocco's work, but because evidently Mark Rocco. And if you go back and look at some of the video, you can kind of see it. I can't do Adrian's accent, but he would, he would say he had like, he had boils, the most disgusting boils all over his body. <laughs> and he oh. Yes. <laughs> he's like, I don't know what was the matter with his skin condition. <laughs> or when he was telling a story of how somebody had tried to work him or just give him a line of bullshit, his eye would arch up and that accent would be even more pronounced. And he'd be like, and then he tried to tell me this bullshit or yeah, whatever. It was just fucking hilarious. I can't do it. I wish I could. But to just listen to him talk, he was fucking hilarious. So you drove around with him and tried to learn as much as you could for him. Memphis was a very different experience. There was no live wrestling TV with promos over in England like there was on Memphis Wrestling TV. What was it like for him to learn how to do that? Well, and that was, I think that's how I got the spot because the first week that he was on TV, um, I was not with him. And then the second week, suddenly I was. Dundee was the booker at that time. And Dundee, he brought him in because he understood not only how to work with the gimmick, but how to work with Adrian. Because Adrian had, as I said, had never been to the States. And so he, if you go back, there's a great match with Adrian uh, versus Jim Brakes on YouTube from like 1972. Yeah. Because that's when he was about 30 years old. Because remember when Adrian came to the U.S. in 1982, he was already, uh, I think, 40 or 41, right? So you go back and you watch the old stuff that he was such a great wrestler because that's what they put the emphasis on in England at the time of the world of sports style was wrestling. And so he had a, a problem adjusting to guys in the Tennessee territory who had never, at that time, this is before any of the wrestlers were watching tape. VCRs had only been around for a year or two. Most of the boys couldn't afford them um, or didn't have time to fucking watch. Right? So the guys working Tennessee had never seen world of sports style. And they really, there were style clashes trying to work with Adrian. But Dundee, because he was from Australia and had worked 
for Barnett, who had brought Americans in and, and as British guys as well, he got it. And they had really great matches. The people, they, they hated Adrian for the gimmick and they loved Dundee. And I got to go along for the ride and be involved in main events. And the matches were exciting as fuck because people were really into it. Right. So that was a big learning experience for me. And I was, and they were the same height. So it looked right. Yes. And it looked right. Yeah. Cause they were the same height. And they both had the big chests and it, you know, it, it worked visually. And I was able, you asked to tell Adrian from, because I was, had been a fan here and studied the territories, et cetera. I could tell him, okay, here's who runs so-and-so and here's who's worked in so-and-so and here, things like that. I wasn't telling him any revolutionary concepts about the wrestling business. I've been doing this for four months, but I'd been a fan and involved and smart to the business in the uh, United States for years. So I could, you know, tell him to be, well, what about the Kansas city? Don't go to Kansas city. You know, shit like that. Right. I knew that much. Cause, um, that's where, <laughs> that's where I would end up trying to get Ken Wayne to book me at about fucking six months before Watts came calling. But anyway, in between, Memphis and when you would see him in Mid-South, he went to Florida, he went to Mid-Atlantic, he got around a little bit. Then he came to Mid-South at the, I want to say in the summer of 84, towards the end of the summer of 84. What was that like? How did he mix with what was happening in 84 in Mid-South? Um, it, again, it was even hotter, really, because those people despised that gimmick. And, you know, at the time, obviously, it's playing on homophobia. But at the same time, it wasn't like Adrian was doing Adrian Adonis, where he's he's blatantly saying, I'm gay, and he's wearing dresses, and he's wearing the garish face makeup like, you know, fucking Shirley Booth on acid. Adrian was an, an English glam rocker with a female valet that he mistreated because he apparently was a male chauvinist pig, even though he was a sissy. And she was portrayed, in some cases, tougher than he was, but in actuality, and, and, and it would take over when he was getting heat as a heel in his matches, all the boys knew he was a fucking shooter and he could stretch almost anybody in the locker room. And I will quantify that or qualify that with he could stretch everybody in the locker room at the time in Memphis, when he came to Mid-South, there were probably a couple guys just because of he was in the mid-40s and he was giving up 100 pounds. He probably wouldn't have wanted to, but he could have fucked him up anyway because he, he knew all the tricks from 25 years in the wrestling business. He told me in the car when we first started riding together because he was talking about how, how are the marks, you know. I said, well, they're not real bad, but you got to watch out Nashville, certain towns. When he got in the wrestling business to defend himself from the marks that were trying to attack him, he he drew circles on his bedroom wall and spent time practicing poking them from out of nowhere as quickly as he could with an index finger on the theory that if anybody came at him, he was just going to poke him in the fucking eye. And then he would go for the balls. So the the whole gimmick was you could read into it what you wanted. Superficially, the guy's a sissy. 
He's got the bleached blonde hair, and he's prancing around, and he's skipping, and his finish, in some cases, when they'd let him get away with it when he first came into territories, he'd jump up in the job guy's arms and give him a big kiss, and when the guy went, oh, shit, he'd roll him up. Yeah, that was one of my favorite things in Mid-South at 84. He shows up, yes. and again, he's prancing, he's bopping around, he's blowing kisses to the camera while he sings his own song. Linda is there with him. So you're like, okay, what exactly is happening and, here? And in sometimes she would get down on her hands and knees at ringside yeah. so he could step on her back to get up on the apron and use her for ring stairs. So remember, he beat Terry Taylor by kissing him, and Terry Taylor's like, what the fuck? And he rolls yes. him up and pins him. And then the next week, I think it was Adrian Street against Chris Adams who came in, and Linda's at ringside. Terry comes down and kisses Linda. That's his revenge. I'll make yes. that with your woman. So then Adrian comes out of the ring and starts beating up Linda. (laughs) (laughs) Jerry Jarrett had him do one when it was Adrian Street and Jesse Barr were going to wrestle Stan and Steve the Fabs in Memphis, right? And they did one of the early Fabs videos, which now we can look back on and say this was pure softcore, you know, male pornography. But they were doing the, it was in the hot tub and they were doing the workout at the gym and they're all sweaty and they're in the Speedos. And then they cut back to the studio and there's Adrian and Linda, both side by side, leaning over, watching the monitor drooling. And then Adrian notices that Linda's looking and slaps her on the shoulder like, quit looking at that. (laughs) So you you didn't know what the fuck was going on, right? But it wasn't like he was lampooning or or creating ill will toward gay people because you didn't know what he fucking was or what the deal and that was part of it right see that's the thing he never came out and said he was gay people would jump to that assumption and again it's a time in society and of course amongst wrestling fans where fans did do that that was something that promoters leaned on he did it in a certain way with adrian adonis he announces he's gay, and all of a sudden he's wearing women's clothing. It's a completely different yeah, yeah. thing. There's it, there's no nuance there like there was with Adrian Street. No, it it was, I could kill a man eventually. You know, <laughs> the, <laughs> you know, and, and the names of his songs. Imagine what I could do to you, and a the sadist in sequins, and a it was the sweet transvestite with a broken nose. You know, fucking Rocky Horror Picture Show deal, right? And See, he and was that, he was glam rock. Adrian Adonis was not in any way like that. No, it was just preposterous. But that's and well, even with the Hell's Angels, a lot of people think, and and Adrian told me this, and I don't know the entire history of motorcycle gangs in England, but in the mid '60s, when they came up with the Hell's Angels, and there are pictures of them on posters from the time wearing leather and studs, but it was. It wasn't Hell's Angel shit. It was S&M shit from the clubs in London, right? And they You're talking about him and Bobby Barnes. Him and Bobby Barnes. And as well, Hell's Angels was supposed to be a different kind of double entendre. As they would come out, he said at one point they got these robes made where they were all in white because they had the bleach blonde hair, right? And they come out in these white flowing robes and then when they get in the ring they spread the robes out and the lining is red silk or whatever bright red so hell's angels white and red shit like that he said one night they're getting in the ring somewhere where they've just got these things these robes and they want to make the big entrance in this 
club somewhere, as they called them back then. And they, as they're getting in the ring, they have to step up on a chair to step up on the apron and get in the ring. So Adrian's first, and he steps up, and he gets in the ring, and he spreads the robe open, and he's expecting the big ooh from the fans, and instead they're fucking dying laughing. They're just popping, blow, blowing snot laughing. And he turns around, and he sees that Bobby Barnes, as he stepped up on that chair on the apron, as he stepped on the apron, the chair had folded up on his foot, and he brought the fucking chair with him on his ankle, and now he said, <laughs> in an Adrian's accent, he said, I'm there trying to make this, this grandiose entrance for the fucking punters, and now I turn around, and Bobby's walking like a duck with a chair on his fucking foot. <laughs> but so they 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 didn't have the the motorcycle gang connotation to that gimmick as as some people may think from hearing the name. And again, they were wearing it was like who uh, what's a fucking Judas Priest lead singer's name? Rob Halford. Rob Halford. Yeah. He was wearing that SM black leather bondage gear. And, you know, as the old saying goes, queer is a football bat. And people, all the all those English bands doing that, that were gay, the people in America thought, oh, shit, that's fucking tough guy stuff. And they're all dressed up, you know, like they're going to the fucking Velvet Underground or something. But anyway. That's not, uh, not, maybe not the Velvet Underground, maybe the Blue Oyster Bar. Well, the, the Velvet Underground is what I mean. You don't know what their undergrounds are made out of. But but that's the thing. Adrian was the he was the furthest thing from homophobic, um, and it, both he and Linda just the, the sweetest people in the world to everybody. And he was again he was so he was a lot different than a lot of the other boys uh, in terms of he loved reading books, uh, painting, various you know cultured things that one would imagine from the you know, a gentleman of the, you know, countryside over there. He even, he lived at one point in a, a farmhouse that I guess the original house dated back to like 1200 or whatever. And he just, you know, it was completely different. He'd have made a great hippie if he was from San Francisco in terms of being, them being so self-sufficient, being able to make everything and, you know, take care of themselves, you know. But I just, it was just, it was so much fun getting a chance for me to do that. At that point in time, when I was just starting out, it gave me a big boost. And also I got to be, you know, not only involved with the booker in a program and a veteran like Adrian, but getting the ring and work. Somebody just tweeted one of the clips of, of, of the matches with Dundee and referee Jerry Calhoun against me and Adrian and Linda. And I remember Jerry Calhoun should have won the brawl for all. Nobody ever smartened him up. That was like his first match. And he was killing me. And But Adrian, whatever, once in a while, would just grab him and give him a just like that uh, as a little receipt. But it wasn't Calhoun's fault. The match where you're, uh, I guess it was your eye. That was, you were teaming with Adrian Street, right? Oh, yes. Well, it, it was the lumberjack match. It was all three of us, me, Adrian, and Linda against Dundee with Lane and Kern and Lawler and Dundee around the ring with straps to whip anybody that tried to leave the ring. And that was at the Cook Convention Center, and it wasn't the regular Memphis Coliseum ring. It was the spot or the uh, TV ring that Buddy Wayne used to bring. And Dundee threw me out of the ring to get whipped so fucking hard, I hit that middle rope, flipped upside down, and laid my side of my face open across the cheekbone. 
20 stitches from the bone out uh, and I'm bleeding <laughs> and then they all knew I got nosebleeds. So I roll back in and Linda's like, your nose is bleeding. I said, it's not my nose. I can stick my index finger inside my cheek now, right? And then Adrian says, your nose is bleeding. I'm like, it's not my nose. And then we got to finish the match, right? And then Dundee had to get a hold of Linda at some point. So he gets her and tries to pull her back in the ring from the apron. And he pulled her tights up into the ultimate camel toe. And the whole front row got a shot, and she's laying there face down on the mat. She's laughing from embarrassment, but I, I wasn't looking because I was too busy bleeding in the other direction, so I thought she'd got potated. And I go over to her. I'm like, are you okay? And she looked, and she said, she's laughing, right? But she said, don't bleed on me. Then after the Dundee beat all three of us, then Adrian grabbed my hand and did the prance around like I was the Maypole, like he'd do to get heat back after we lost. But in the meantime, I'm spurting blood six inches out of my face. I'm like, Adrian, can, can we go now? It was a wonderful 20 minutes out of my life. And I'll have you know that I worked Jackson, Tennessee and Memphis that day, and my combined payoff was only $30 less than I had to pay the plastic surgeon to sew my face up. But it was experience. And, that, you know, that's, <laughs> again, that's a thing that a lot of people say, what the fuck? It's experience. You learn a lot of shit about what not to do and to do in times like that. But that, I, I had my biggest week in wrestling until I went to work for Bill Watts managing Adrian Street. Because one week, not a, we were going around with Dundee with the angle, but we set the all-time box office record at the Nashville Fairgrounds Arena with that uh, handicap match in the main event. Lawler didn't like to work Nashville on Saturday nights because he lived in Memphis, so he and Jimmy Hart would main event in, or in Jonesboro, and they'd fill out the card there. And the guys, most of them that lived in Nashville... The Fabs, Dundee, whatever, they'd be booked in Nashville. And we just happened to hit that we were the main event. I believe it was within a week or two or three weeks that they raised ticket prices across the board. So instead of like three, four, and five, they were four, five, and six. And we sold out and got the got the gate record for the building. It's my first box office record. I can see you're impressed. I'm very impressed and more impressed by the career of Adrian Street. And of course, we send our sympathies to the friends, the fans of Exotic Adrian Street and of course, Miss Linda. Well, and, and I feel bad for Linda also. And I saw them, gosh, I, it was at a fan fest somewhere, probably maybe in Charlotte, but probably seven, eight years ago. They had lived in Pensacola in the Gulf Breeze area. Uh, for all those years after he sort of settled in Continental and when the territories went away, he stayed there and wrote his books, did his art. They did a wrestling school and made tights and et cetera. But it was, I guess, right after I saw him last at that fan fest, they moved back to Wales. Um, you know, after, God, what was it, 35 years away or whatever, I guess, you know, he wanted to get back. But um, they were together since... I, they had been together almost 15 years when they came to Tennessee and there was never any, you know, dalliances or anything like that. Linda totally devoted to Adrian. I don't think, you know, he would never have admitted it, but Adrian couldn't function. I don't think without her. And I just, I feel bad. She's, 
probably several years younger than than he was. Uh, but I feel bad, you know, just knowing that how much she's probably going to miss him. Um, cause they were, they were always together everywhere. It wasn't like he'd go on the road or whatever, like, you know, normal wrestling marriages. They were always together. And after 50 years, good Lord, one or both of them probably deserve a, a medal. But, um, but yeah, I did just a unique guy. I encourage everybody to listen to the, to his records and read his books and, you know, the, we didn't even get to the matches in other territories, but it just, that was the thing is Adrian was just a natural performer and just a personality. Like Mama Cornette used to say, he, he wasn't playing a character. He was a character and, you know, unique, if nothing else. A lot of people tried to copy it, but they never got the gist of it is that it wasn't, it was just about the flamboyance rather than, which team you played for, I guess. Well, of course, everyone will miss the exotic Adrian Street, but fans of AEW Gym will not be missing the Elite anytime soon. Oh, you got to go to that now. I have a press release that has been sent to me this morning, August 2nd, 2023. The Elite signed long-term contract extensions with AEW. Kenny Omega, the Young Bucks, and Hangman Adam Page will continue their journey with AEW after helping launch promotion in 2019. Here's the press release. If they're going to continue their journey, how far away will they eventually get? Ahead of tonight's landmark 200th episode of AEW Dynamite Live on TBS, AEW CEO, GM, and head of creative Tony Khan today announced that EVP's Kenny Omega the Young Bucks, Matt and Nick Jackson, as well as Hangman Adam Page, have signed long-term extensions with AEW. The announcement ensures that four cornerstones key to the launch of AEW in 2019 will remain with the promotion, where they have helped build AEW into a household name across the globe and competed... Wait, wait a minute. In, in whose household? Well, across the globe, many households. Many, but not most of them. A household name across the globe would indicate that, that their names are being bandied around in every household from Calcutta to Cambodia. I don't know that's the case. And they have competed in some of the most critically acclaimed matches in professional wrestling history. And if you don't believe us, just listen to this critic. The four have experienced unprecedented success both individually and as a group in AEW. Omega and Page are former AEW World Champions and former World Tag Team Champions with one another. Omega also held the AEW World Trios Championship twice with the Young Bucks, <laughs> who themselves are former two-time AEW World Tag Team Champions. Here's a quote from Tony Khan. The Elite have been so important to the launch of AEW, with the Young Bucks going all-in when I first approached them in 2018 about my dream to create an international pro wrestling promotion. Shortly after that, their partners and closest friends, Kenny Omega and Hangman Adam Page, joined us to formally launch All Elite Wrestling. All four of them have been instrumental to AEW's success from the very first episode of Wednesday Night Dynamite in 2019 through the present day. 
Now, as we celebrate tonight's 200th episode of AEW Dynamite, I'm excited to share that Kenny Omega, the Young Bucks, and Hangman Adam Page will be staying in AEW for years to come. Congratulations to the Elite! And we look forward to celebrating the great news with fans around the world. See you all tonight for episode 200 of AEW Dynamite. Each member of the Elite spoke to Sports Illustrated earlier today, which is available here. And then, I'm boy, gonna... I'll tell you, Tony was vaccinated with a phonograph needle too. But and then attached is the latest Justin Barrasso puff piece: the Elite renewed contracts <laughs> at AEW, filled with a bunch of quotes. We can get to in a moment. What are your thoughts is on all this? A, can, it, can those be called a puff piece, or have we gone to full fledged blow pieces? At a blow this piece. Point? He's not just puffing on it; he's blowing. Well, we see why he's doing it because they're attaching his articles to their press releases. So obviously, everyone's happy with the relationship. What are your thoughts on this news? They're signing extensions and staying with AEW. Well, I mean, it's not shocking and it's not surprising. And, I, you know, honestly, I don't even think that they really cheated Tony out of as much money as they could have if they ran this thing down a little closer and threatened to leave. And Because you know that the WWE, with more money than has ever been seen before, we've talked about this before, would offer them money just so the other side doesn't have them and just to fuck with Tony Khan's company and fuck with the opposition. And they may be able to figure out something to do with Twinkle Toes for as long as his body lasts, but they don't normally make investments in anybody that age with that history of injuries to begin with, but because he's figured in with Tony, they would. And they, as we know, four years ago, when he was four years younger with four years less injuries, they made an offer and to the buckaroos when they found out a billionaire was going to back them. And they were also the WWE being they were paying a lot of people a lot of fucking more money than normal to resign until they saw what AEW turned out to be. And then they stopped making a lot of those ridiculous offers. Point being, yes. The WWE would offer all these guys something. I think they'd probably hold their nose at the buckaroos most of all because they wouldn't be used even if they hired them because they're too set in their ways. They wouldn't take direction and they're minute and the WWE wouldn't particularly give a shit. And they don't matter today like they did five years ago. And, and they don't matter today except to deprive the, it would, be, it would be a bigger black eye to Tony to lose the buckaroos than it would be a wonderful happening for the WWE to get them. See, that's it right there. After the Cody Rhodes thing, if Tony lost any of those four people, it looks bad. Yeah. Tony looks bad. Everyone else looks fine. So, and, and Paige, they got a million potential Adam Pages, but they, again, to take him away, maybe, I don't know, but they'd rather take away the other ones. But by the same token, as we've mentioned, I think if they'd have run it down to the, to the nub and threatened Tony that they were going to leave and almost had a foot out the door, they could have jacked him for a bunch more money. So they probably realized that maybe they just ought not rock this fucking boat since they've been treated so well and, He's given them all this money for whatever the fuck it is they've done for him. Uh, and and don't mess it up too bad. And they just said, okay, Tony, for a, a nice raise or whatever, I'm, which I'm sure he gave them, we'll stick around and continue to lose you 200,000 viewers on Wednesday nights. 
but it's not shock. He can't lose them. It would be, even if they're not performing, it would be embarrassing for him to lose his upper people. It would be embarrassing for him to lose Almost the as embarrassing as it was for him to make those people his upper people. At this point, all elite wrestling, if they lost the elite, it would look awful. And the Young Bucks don't mean what they used to. And I don't think they would do that great in WWE. Again, they don't mean what they used to. Hangman Adam Page, you wonder. The thing about Omega is Omega is a main eventer who can't work even a part-time schedule. He works a handful of matches a year, breaks his body down, and you could tell why. I mean, again, yeah. he pushed back at all the criticism about the Tiger Driver. Don't tell me how to wrestle. We're telling you not to break your neck, you idiot. No, we're not telling you how to wrestle. Gravity is telling you you don't wrestle good. So that's the thing. Omega, like people are like, oh, he would do so great in WWE. I don't think he'd be able to physically do well because they're not going to make him a Brock or even a Logan Paul who comes in and out. He would have to be there on TV like a Cody or like anyone else. I don't think physically he could do it. And then could you imagine having to listen to him talk through these overly scripted WWE promos for 10 minutes, 15 minutes at a time? How brutal that would be well speaking of which we have some quotes here from the sports illustrated art or si.com if we're going to be accurate here here's some kenny omega quotes our original goal was to create a wrestling alternative and give a platform to talented people that we'd all felt deserved a spotlight i feel like we did our best in that time and hopefully some people you'd never heard of pre-aw are folks you enjoy watching today or if you knew them from the well, previous I, I, there's definitely a bunch of people we'd never heard of before AEW, but I'm not sure how many of them were enjoying watching today. Or if you knew them from their previous work elsewhere, have maybe found a new appreciation for them. Now nah, we liked them better before. That feeling, combined with the feeling of knowing they can provide for themselves and their family doing what they love, was always the biggest reward of being an EVP slash founder. Pro wrestling has a presence almost everywhere on the planet. In my pursuit to become as complete a performer as possible, my goal was always to experience the styles of the world at the highest level. I believe that with AEW's current working relationships, and possibly future, I can challenge all forms of pro wrestling and diversify my style so that I'm equipped for any scenario I may encounter in the ring. I can stick my finger in any wrestling match anywhere around the world and screw up their business at the twinkling of an eye or a toe. Omega would have been a prized commodity had he entertained free agency. While so many other wrestlers dream of headlining WWE's signature WrestleMania event, Omega prefers to pave a new path. I was careful to weigh out all options and was open-minded to all possibilities. I'm here to help whomever I can while I'm still around. Up to this point, I've made the choice to sacrifice everything in the name of pro wrestling. I can't say that family or my kids influenced the decision to stay with AEW. He has kids? I'm not married and without kids. But what I can say is that I'm incredibly proud of my match catalog and the wonderful people I've met and continue to meet. (laughs) It's such a weird thing. I may not have kids, but I'm proud of my match catalog. AEW not only allows me to continue doing what I do at a high level, but allows the freedom to pursue some other passions I have in life, which, after nearly 25 years in the ring, have become more and more important to me. What are his other passions? Maybe video game work. 
Jesus Christ. If he if he's so anxious to be a complete performer, why can't he work on a, doing a promo? And if he wants to master all styles of wrestling, how about American-style professional wrestling? Because you suck at that. We have a quote here from uh, the Jacksons, Matt and Nick Jackson, the Massey brothers, who are proud natives of Rancho Cucamonga, California. Our founding fathers of AEW is half of the company's four original EVPs. Cody Rhodes was also part of that quartet. Before he left to become the hottest babyface in the business. The Bucks will remain in AEW, keeping the elite in their home promotion. Here's a quote from Matt Jackson. We're literally the E in AEW. The elite are the main characters of this company. No matter how different AEW is now from its original inception, we are the DNA. Oh, good. And if you lose the foundation of your home, it eventually collapses. Does that mean that if we had one of those purple fluorescent lights and we shone it on them, that they would show up as green splotches because they're the DNA of AEW? I think technically, based on what he's saying here, yes, that's exactly what that believe uh, what that okay. means. And if you lose the foundation of your home, it eventually collapses. It'd be a lie if I said that didn't weigh on us when making this decision. Does anybody, does anybody honestly think that if the buckaroos said, fuck it, we're going to cease to exist on this planet, we're going to Pluto in a spaceship, that it would negatively impact one way or the other AEW business at this point? No, it would not. Just Maddie and Nikki. It would have been a unique sight to see the Bucks leave AEW and wrestle inside a WWE ring. A number of factors, with their families atop that list, played a role in their return. Here's a quote from Nick Jackson. Are you kidding me? This guy's given us all this money and we work one day a week? Why would I ever go there? I get to do whatever I want. No one tells me no. And all the money. <laughs> no, I made up that quote. Uh, here's a quote from Nick Jackson. If we're going to be honest, the schedule was a huge part of it. I have a wife and three young children, and seeing them as much as possible was a big factor. I'm not going to lie. The money was a huge factor, too. Actually, basically just said what I said. Well, yeah. <laughs> At this point in my life and my career, I just couldn't see myself being on the road half of the year or even more than that. I have so much respect for the guys and girls that are able to do that year after year. We for sure could have made memories in WWE, but what's more important to me is making memories with my family. With the position we're in, I'll be able to do that and still make memories in AEW. So what are your thoughts on the memory making? making a lot of memories. Making a lot of memories. Hopefully PTSD doesn't block many of them out for the wrestling fans when they have to watch years more of this drivel that we are fed, this pablum from these children. So obviously, just to take a break for a second, they work some Wednesdays. It's not even every Wednesday they're at TV. They work some Wednesdays, no Saturdays, unless it's a pay-per-view, and then they'll work that Saturday. So one day a week, maybe two days a week, at the most, some travel, maybe on a private plane, but some travel. <laughs> WWE, are they working a crazy schedule nowadays? I mean, no one talks about the crazy WWE schedule anymore, do they? No, they, they do, what, two or three house shows in their TV, or their TV on Friday and then two or three house shows. And does anybody work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday anymore? It's fucking insane. 
The full-time wrestlers wrestle four days a week. Jesus Christ, my asshole bleeds for all of their misery. The Young Bucks certainly would have created lasting memories in WWE, yet it is more significant to them to create those in AEW. Here's another quote from Matt Jackson. Oh, good God. In my older years of my career, being closer to the end than I am the beginning, I'm not really one who worries much about my legacy anymore. I've kind of noticed, like a summer tan, most memories fade. Oh, good Lord. Or... Is that a... No, did you make that up? No, that's, it says that here. I've kind of noticed, like a summer tan, most memories fade. Or they're remembered differently, or told with errors anyway. Oftentimes, the memory is almost instantly forgotten because you hit the refresh button. As far as my own personal stories... Do you have a refresh button? Yeah, right on top of my head. As far as my own personal stories, I'll have enough to retell my grandchildren for a lifetime. And much of those stories can be about how I helped create a massively successful wrestling company where all of your favorites can be seen on live television every week. Ultimately, I made the best decision for my family. Working in AEW will allow me the most time with my children, and they're still at the young age where they need their dad at home as much as possible. And as soon as I find out who that son of a bitch is, I'm going to make him come over to my house and be there. Having the strongest marriage possible with my wife, Dana, is so important to me as well. When wrestling is finished, I want to come home to a full, healthy home. The entire elite was going to make the decision of where we were going together. And that's what we did. We stuck together. Whatever we do, wherever we go. We're all gonna go through it together. The entire elite's gonna through do this thick together. And through thin. Yeah, the entire elite's gonna do this together, other than Cody, who did it on his own. <laughs> uh, which isn't typical in the wrestling business. But again, I used the word family earlier. We're not just locker room pals. We're more like a family. And we did what the family wanted. And then I'll go a little bit more here from Nick Jackson. The goal for us. More. The goal for us is to continue to build the company and still be true alternatives. We can't lose that identity. Short-term goals, the goal is to help make All In as successful and big as possible. I don't think any of us ever thought we'd be able to sell 70,000 tickets for one show, but here we are. They sold 70,000 tickets. It's mind-blowing, and we keep moving the goalposts further and further. This is what we helped create. It made the wrestling business so much healthier. We take pride in the success AEW has achieved. I think it's huge for AEW to keep the elite. It's a W for the company and for us. And finally, uh -huh. finally, I'll end this with Matt Jackson here. Oh boy. Our next goal in AEW, piss more people off, make people happy, continue to think outside the box, tell unique stories, share a laugh with the guys in the locker room, make my parents proud, Shine a light in an often dark place. And when it's over, to come home to my family in one piece. And take a shit in my hand and wave it under my nose and smell that it smells like pretty flowers. There's more fluff and more quotes here from Adam Page, but he's not. Any more fluff. Uh, we're not going to read any of the Adam Page don't quotes fluff here. fluff me anymore. No, I don't want to be fluffed by the hangnail. Closing comments on the Elite re-signing with AEW. 
Again, it, nobody's surprised. Tony had to keep him. He's over a barrel because he's treated him this way and presented him like this, that they are the E in his company. And he's stuck with them. And they've divided the locker room. They've divided his fan base with their childish backstage maneuvering and fucking grade school goddamn whisper campaigns and who's who's friend. They lose viewers. Kenny on his own in limited doses. People will watch his shit. But when he gets with the Cucamonga kids, bleh. And Hangnail is the definition of Captain Average. He's there, he's not, nobody cares, he's around again, blah. So they've got Tony over a barrel, he has to keep him, he has to pay him, and they're not going to be taken to task for the damage they've done to potentially grow in the company past this ceiling they've hit of people who just want to laugh at silly fucking phony wrestling. That's their audience, and they've got it. And, but you can't get anybody else on top of that by the nature of it. So there's where they are. Well, Jim, let's stay on the topic of AEW. Of course, we're talking about the stars of AEW Dynamite. Some Wednesdays, some Wednesdays, they seem to be at home doing nothing. But AEW Collision this past week, July 29, 2023, we have the ratings. And actually, when I heard this, I was like, God damn. The one show, but of course it had the main event and we know what to attribute the rating success to, but the one show that we were like, oh, geez, this, this isn't the collision we've come to know. It did a great number, but it was basically all on the back of the one advertised thing they couldn't turn down, which was what's going to happen with FTR and Cole and MJF. To me, it's more about Cole and MJF. They've proven it now on Wednesday nights. They keep popping the number. They keep yeah. popping the uh, key demo. Well, that's why I'm saying what, you know, they wanted to know what was going to happen. Are they going to win? Are they going to break up? What are they going to do? The rating AW Collision July 29th on TNT Saturday night was watched by 739,000 viewers on average. So they've been on the air for six weeks and they're within about 100,000 of the Normal numbers that Wednesday night gets for this thing. Go ahead. Well, here we go. Quarter 1, 8 to 8.15 p.m. Uh, this is compiled by WrestleNomics. The opening backstage promos and the ladder match, Andrade El Idolo versus Buddy Matthews with picture-in-picture. Picture. They open with 755,000 viewers. And that uh, that indicates from just looking at this that they're going to stay pretty consistent throughout the program but again what was advertised the mjf uh cold tag match uh starks and not starks no but, no uh, cm punk will speak it wasn't guaranteed cm, CM punk will speak yeah. and then this this ladder match so here we go quarter two eight fifteen eight thirty p.m andrade el idolo versus buddy matthews continued also miro gets attacked by aaron solo backstage an ad break, and the start of Minoru Suzuki versus Darby Allen, 704,000 viewers. Yeah, that did, it, it, it got dreary at that point, but, you know, there you go. Suzuki, he appeals to the 
the real hardcores out there. Go ahead. And let me just point out here, because it uh, plays into the end, the opening key demo number was 342,000 viewers for quarter one. 342. Okay, I've noted that. Quarter three, 8.30 to 8.45 p.m. The continuation of Minoru Suzuki versus Darby Allen with Picture and Picture. The post-match with Christian Cage. Tony Storm backstage promo. And Samoa Joe versus Gravity. Can't even say that one without laughing. 678,000 viewers. Yeah, see, now that's, unfortunately... That's the law of gravity. That's the law of gravity. There you go, kid. And and it looks like they're going to make a major comeback, but as we mentioned when we talked about this show, the first part was a schlog. They're now down 78,000 people from the... Or 77,000 from the start of the program. Well, here we go, quarter four, 8.45 to 9 p.m. The continuation and finish of Samoa Joe versus Gravity, an ad break, and the CM Punk Live promo leading to a confrontation with Ricky Starks, 740,000 viewers. Okay, so suddenly, I wonder what was different to get back uh, 62,000 people in 15 minutes. Well, that leads us to the 9 o'clock hour, quarter 5, 9 to 9.15 p.m. Continuation of Punk's confrontation with Ricky Starks. Action Andretti, Darius Martin, and El Hijo del Vikingo versus the Guns and Juice Robinson with picture-in-picture. 751,000 viewers. Okay, so another 11,000, so we can basically credit Punk. I don't think the six-man got it. Credit Punk with... Getting them back from 77,000 down to almost exactly where they were at the start of the program. Quarter, where are we now? Quarter six. Six. The finish of the previous six-man tag match. The post-match with Jay White. Mercedes Martinez versus Kiera Hogan with picture-in-picture. 682,000 viewers. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Um... Apparently, they ought to just put out like the emergency weather warning when you get a thunderstorm warning or something, the beep, 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 and it pop up. They ought to do that whenever Punk's on TV to alert people to switch over because that's apparently what they're looking for. Because now they they just went from 751 to 682. That's almost 70,000 people, which is what they just had gained. But it was very similar to kind of a dynamite booking pattern here's punk followed by a six-man match with some talented people but no one's been presented in a way that would make you really care about this specific match followed by a women's match out of nowhere mercedes martinez and kiera hogan have been nowhere near this program so it's literally two random women for this audience yes thrown together for this match but that brings us to quarter seven 9 30 to 9 45 p.m an ad break and ftr versus adam cole and mjf with picture in picture 756,000 viewers. Boom! <laughs> give me quarter eight, and then we'll talk about it. Quarter eight, there's also a one-minute overrun, so I'll give you that, too. Quarter eight, 9.45 to 10 p.m., continuation of FTR versus Cole and MJF, uh, and the post-match, 837,000 viewers. Jesus Christ! 
In the key demo, 426,000 viewers, the high, obviously, of the entire episode. And one minute overrun, 833 and 422. So they kept for that one minute overrun. So that really doesn't matter much. And it's one minute, so you don't really get... But yeah. here's what happened. They came on the air with 755,000 people, and within 45 minutes, they had lost 77,000. CM Punk shows up, and they get back the 77,000 they lost. CM Punk goes away, and they lose another 70-something thousand. And then MJF and Adam Cole show up, and they gain the 70-something thousand back, and then get another 80,000 for the last 15 minutes. So, basically, if you just gave CM Punk an hour and MJF and Adam Cole an hour, you could do the highest-rated show in wrestling. And that's the only way to look at this. And again, Collision, not only... Even though they don't keep their audience all the way through, they start they finish with a lar the same or larger audience than they started with, which is unlike almost any Wednesday night program. And instead of it being a, a program of attrition where they start with a big number and slowly dribble people away because they're just seeing a bunch of dreck, these people are motivated to see the main event stars of the program, and they apparently keep an eye on it somehow or have a warning system going off so they can pop back in whenever the three or four interesting people in the company show up. You think Tony's harassing MJF about working more Saturdays already <laughs> after this number? I, you know, they've got something here. They've got, they've got Punk and the real world champion and the... The fact that he's going to draw a viewing boom when he comes on the screen and they and they people can boo him or cheer him, but they've got some strong opinion and they've got MJF and Adam Cole where the people, including us, don't know how it's going to end up and don't know what the fuck's going to happen, but it's more entertaining than anything you're seeing most anywhere else, so they want to see it. And they got those fucking two things. What else? What do they have on Wednesday night? John Moxley and the Blackpool Combat Club, Chris Jericho and Don Callis and their folly. The Elite haven't really been on too much uh, beyond blood and guts lately. MJF and Cole, big part of Dynamite. Well, MJF and Cole bop back and forth, yes. But uh, what about when these numbers, if these numbers get any closer, what do you think? I mean, because we didn't think that they would catch up to Wednesday night, you know, at least for a while well all the experts were saying saturday night's this big handicap and who was it coachman said well wrestling's never worked on saturday night except for fucking 40 years in every territory in the country but nevertheless he doesn't um, work on saturday nights he doesn't work on saturday nights his shit doesn't work most of the time but it, they have proven that if there is a program that is consistently good and or not insulting and or contains a couple of personalities that people want to see, they will watch the fucking thing, whether it's on Saturday night, Tuesday morning, or whatever the fuck, I guess. And now they are within 100,000 of the normal average that the Wednesday night show has been doing. And can you tell me the last time, except for blood and guts, that Wednesday night finished with almost 100,000 
more well it, I don't even think blood and guts was 100,000 more they finished with a big number Wednesday never finishes with more than they start with and Wednesday never finishes with over 800,000 and this show did both you know in that press release about the elite resigning they talk so much about AEW being an alternative to without saying WWE everything else out there it really means WWE I think they're showing Saturday internally Saturday is an alternative to Wednesday and based on some of the viewing patterns of the audience, it also may be a different audience than is watching on Wednesday. Yeah, Saturday night is a an alternative to AEW's rottenness. They will give us a program that there's still some rotten, as we saw the other night, but they're trying to be good. And people are starting to say, oh, you know what, this is kind of more interesting because we're seeing something different it's not all the same shit with same whiny ass little pussies which would be AEW dynamite which we will be reviewing later on in this episode but jim another big story breaking as we are recording i have an article here cnbc.com wwe boss vince mcmahon hit with <laughs> federal grand jury subpoena and search warrant company reveals here are the key points Federal law enforcement agents executed a search warrant on World Wrestling Entertainment boss Vince McMahon and served him with a federal grand jury subpoena last month, WWE disclosed. No wonder Jerry McDivitt retired. <laughs> the actions represent the escalation of an ongoing investigation into allegations that McMahon had paid millions of dollars over the years to women after being accused of sexual misconduct. WWE also revealed that McMahon, quote, went on medical leave after undergoing major spinal surgery. So those are the headlines and the big bullet points here. Before I get to anything else, what are your, how much of this do you, are you aware of right now? What do you want to say about it? Well, first of all, why is there still an ongoing investigation? Haven't we established? Yes, he did. Yes, he did have sexual Congress with these women. And yes, he did pay them some money. Didn't we pretty much move past that a while back? Well, I don't know if I want to say move past it, but we certainly acknowledge that didn't well, we, happen. We, we have moved past it, whether it was in doubt or not is what I'm saying to you. Why are they still investigating? Well, are they trying to find out if there's more? What difference does it make? He came back and took his ball back and sold it. What are they going to do yet. now? Not, it hasn't been sold yet. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't been official yet well god bet you he's got some kind of money from somebody in a fucking satchel somewhere what do you think they're searching for a search warrant what would that's they what i looking for i don't know but uh, does he have a dress like with stains on it like what are they looking uh, for <laughs> no he neither one of them were wearing clothes when that happened but the summons the subpoena and the surgery seem to be a recurring trend because do you remember the neck brace. The, the steroid trial in 1992, at the same time as Vince was in court testifying. Oh, in 94. That trial, 94. 94. I'm sorry. It was started, the whole thing started in 92. But in 94, when he was in court testifying, he was wearing a neck brace from a neck surgery that he had, that I believe. I've heard mentioned was an elective procedure that he just decided, well, it'd be a good time to get it done. There's pictures of him smiling and holding hands with Linda wearing this fucking, I don't know, it was a neck brace or the, a toilet seat around his neck. 
but he had neck surgery so he could go into court wearing a neck brace. It looked like a goddamn, you know, I expected to see fucking Joe Pesci show up. And now at the same, 30 years later, he's subpoenaed and or summonsed and or searched. And he also got surgery on his fucking neck. His back this time. Spinal surgery. Well, your spi- well okay, your spine. You go wheel him into the courtroom in a bed. Where is it? Yeah. Is it upper back, lower neck? Is it in between his taint and his coccyx? Uh, according to WWE, McMahon's leave began on July 21st, and he will remain on medical leave until further notice, but will remain executive chairman. When was he served? With the subpoena or the summons or the search warrant? Ooh, uh, the search warrant and subpoena came on July 17th, which is a year Went on medical leave on July 21st. On July 21st, he went on medical leave. That's right. And had a major spinal surgery is what we are being told. I wonder if he used Shawn Michaels as back doctor. I was kind of joking before, but now timeline-wise, no wonder Jerry McDivitt's like, you know what? I'm done with the MLW case. I'm done with all of this. Yeah, well, then that's that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, look at this. Is this history going around the bend again? If he lives to be 110, is the is the government going to come after him again? Uh, but again, when, I mean, well, I, when you I say when the see, government I come can... after him, the first time it was a bullshit. I mean, not to say that he didn't love steroids and want his guys on it, but Right. The distribution no charge case. in Nassau yeah. County was bullshit. We don't know what this is yet. I don't know. All I'm saying is it seems awfully odd. Now, I'm not saying that somebody would have majorly invasive spinal surgery just as a reflex action from getting served, but maybe he thought, well, it might be a good time. Get some sympathy. I don't know, but every time he gets in some hot water like this, he, he's, he's going to the surgeon. So uh, if Vince, if there's another big trial for Vince McMahon, do you think he shows up to court with the mustache and the dyed hair or without it? I'm thinking he's looking for sympathy. He's going to go full on Vincent, the chin gigante. Really? He's, he's going to show up in a bathrobe. He's going to come in in a bathrobe and slippers with no socks. He's going to have a neck brace on. His hair will be disheveled. He'll be drooling out of one side of his mouth and he'll be walking in circles. You know, it's sad. That's the way he's going to get out of it. It's really sad that I could envision Vince McMahon doing these things based on all of his acting that I've seen for years as Mr. McMahon. I could totally see him do it. There's nothing he wouldn't do to stay out of jail, right? Of course. Vince McMahon's never going to go to jail. If he has to buy the goddamn jail, he will not be going to jail. And we don't know if this is a jailable offense or if this is a search warrant related to whatever they're investigating related to the financial fucking concerns and whether or not that he may then be able to plead ignorance is no excuse of the law or some shit like that. But We have a search warrant. No one's seen Linda in years. That, well, there you go. Where's Linda in all this? Somebody find where Linda is. Maybe, and then maybe they can nominate her to be his court-appointed caretaker. And then there's a fucking reality show. He's going to keep playing this game. Again, last year, he gets hit with all these charges, then just announces, you know, 77, time to retire. I'm going. Let's it all die down, pops back up bigger than ever. And now all of a sudden, the feds are after him. Last time it was the neck, now it's the entire spinal column. They're going to have to push him into the hey, courtroom I, in a fucking bed? 
you know that already. He's going to be just a head with blankets all over him in the corner. <laughs> the blankets and the fucking, the clicker for his morphine drip. <laughs> and, uh, but that's, and, and the way that this takes so long, and the feds need to put their resources behind Trump. I don't care how many paralegals that Vince dallied with. I, the health and safety of the United States and the world at large is more important than whether Vince goes to jail. Put fucking Trump in prison first, and then we can worry about the minor offense offenders. But I don't. I know he's not going to jail, and and I guarantee you, it won't fuck. If if Ari Emanuel already knows that he's doing business with Dana White and Vince McMahon, nothing he's going to hear at this point is going to change his fucking mind. That's right. This is not like Podcast One and Colin Thompson. This is Vince McMahon and Ari Emanuel. Yeah. They, they know what they're getting. They're not going to bail out now. So I think everybody's fine. Everybody's going to be just fine. You think Vince will be just fine? Well, Vince will be just fine. Unless, for whatever reason, the what surgery goes sideways. And then maybe they'll just... I wonder if they can if they can straighten Vince's spine, they could curve it also. That means that eventually there's help for Vince Russo getting his own head out of his own ass. That thought just came to me. Well, Jim, regardless of the statements issued, it seems like Vince may be in a lot of trouble and Jerry McDivitt <laughs> announced his retirement. He's done at the end of the yep. year. I don't know if he's going to want to jump on this. If it's going to go past the end of the year, because that was his excuse for leaving the MLW suit. Yeah, no, he's gone, Jerry. He's history. Jim, I don't know why I said Jim. Vince may need new counsel. Well, you know, that's exactly right, Brian, because with McDivitt, the wonder boy of the previous legal era, having ridden off into the sunset on old paint and to enjoy his retirement while he can before Vince got in any more trouble, now he's out of the picture. And who in the world, who in the world has the command? of the American jurisprudence system, who in the world has the ability to tongue twist all of the opposing counsel's words against them? Who in the world can possibly bail Vince out of this mess and neck collar at the same damn time? Call Stephen And Brian, yes, I say this in all sincerity. I believe the only person that could stand up in front of a judge, that could stand up in front of a jury and point at Vince McMahon and say, Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this here crook is innocent, is the man, the myth, the legend himself, Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. The phone call won't cost you a thing. But in return, you will be showered with American currency, greenback dollars, courtesy of the people that have wronged you, have un unlawfully terminated you, have given you cancer, or but he might even do, you know, fucking negligent pregnancies. Who knows if you were what? negligently impregnated, 
You know, call Steven. That's a that's a thing that you might need to check into. I better check into him about all this. I don't know if he does any of this or wants well, to. Well, if people have been negligent around your general vicinity <laughs> and you or your family have been harmed in some way by this negligence and disregard for your property and your well-being and your mental state of mind, Stephen P. New will drag the offenders into a court of law and give them a legal slapping about the head and face and make them immediately fork out their hard-earned money that they stole from somebody, possibly you, back to you. So that's what he's going to do. And is I don't even know, though, if he will represent Vince because Stephen's got such a great track record going on, and we don't know how guilty old VKM is. So maybe Stephen is going to be like, you know, like when all the good lawyers turned Trump down because they didn't want to spoil their winning records. I don't know whether Stephen is the perfect fit for Vince McMahon, but he's the perfect fit for you, ladies and gentlemen. And I will guarantee you one more thing. The people that have offended you, his foot will be a perfect fit in their ass right in the middle of the courtroom. And they'll be the bailiff. <laughs> Old Judge Judy's bailiff trying to pull Stephen P. New's foot out of somebody's anal orifice that he has lodged <laughs> it in there. I thought you said they'll be the bailiff. I the said... ba no, the bailiff will be helping to pull the foot because once Stephen puts that legal <laughs> foot up an ass, he can't get it out by himself. It's stuck. I thought you said he was going to kick the bailiff and then... <laughs> no, he's, the bailiff is going to be pulling the foot out of the ass that he's put up the person that is going to be paying you money if you're Stephen P. News customer. And I don't know whether we're going to get any particular money out of Colin Thompson, the alleged weasel from cast media, but by gum, we're going to have him hauled into court and he's going to be answering a litany of questions because that's one thing that Stephen P. New is good for doing oh, yeah. in a courtroom and that's asking a lot of questions. We're going to be going through his emails. We're going to be going through his text messages. We're going to be talking to friends in Los Angeles and St. Louis and Chicago. We're going to be doing everything we have to do to find out where our money went and how and spent. where everybody else's is, too. That's right. It might, might be somewhere on a, a South American island or a, a South American country out in the Pacific Ocean. Or we don't <laughs> never know where that these things are hidden. But anyway, Stephen P. New will find out. Newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. That's right. Do you think when Vince goes to trial, the wild Samoans will show up again like they did in 94 to... Mouth the words "not guilty" to the yeah, jury. Yeah, they just sat there in the courtroom and stared at the jury and not guilty. <laughs> How great would that be if all of a sudden old Alpha and old Sika show up in matching suits to the courtroom? No, but it's got to be the next generation. Now it's got to be Rikishi. In comes a four hundred no. pound giant and sits there on two chairs. You don't think it would be better if it was the original two? That's like a throwback to the first film. I, well, I'm afraid, unfortunately, that the modern jury audience might not recognize how badass those guys were in their prime and instead see fossilized remains of what was once the Wild Samoans. Well, this has been the drive through ladies and gentlemen. But with that, let's travel through time so we can talk about things that we have not yet talked about and in some cases not yet seen or heard about. Let's now travel on the mothership. We have landed in the future, and we are here. 
That mothership sounds like me after I have a really spicy dinner. Well, let's not go back to the happy talk from part one of this program. Well, nothing's changed. Anyway, what are we going to first? The stuff that we've already seen before we traveled through time or the stuff that we had to travel through time to look at? Well, why don't we uh, stay on the topic of defecation and talk about whatever you saw on Monday Night Raw this past week? Ooh, boy. There were a couple things I really liked. Well, in three hours, you know, almost statistically, it's almost impossible to fucking whiff everything in three hours. But that therein lies the problem again, this program especially. Many of them these days are a schlog, but raw, three hours. You either got to sit through or fast forward through endless entrances, constant commercials, bullshit backstage brawls somnambulistic soliloquies and millennium-long monologues Wow! to get to anything interesting, or ex and that was more interesting than two hours and 40 minutes of Raw. Um, the first segment was Logan Paul and Ricochet. They're going to face each other at SummerSlam. And by the way, I've now found out that Logan Paul will be on first with Ricochet at SummerSlam because he's then going to run right well, not run. I imagine he'll have a car, some type of wheeled transportation. To take him to the airport, he's going to get on a private plane, and he's going to go to his brother's boxing match against Nate Diaz, which is happening. Where is uh, uh, SummerSlam's in Detroit? I think this is going on somewhere in Vegas or something. Sounds like Vegas. And because that fight is taking place the same night as SummerSlam, I got to watch the cock again. I can't get normal television pay-per-view here in Louisville, Kentucky of SummerSlam the way that God and Vince McMahon intended, if there is indeed a difference between those two entities, because there of the is. boxing match. There is. Well, the boxing match, <laughs> apparently Vince is losing his pull. I guess God won out. God picked the boxing match, because now i got to watch the cock for SummerSlam instead of actually on a real fucking television. How's that possible? Isn't there more than one pay-per-view station on every cable system? Yeah, I can get it in Spanish. Oh, well, that may be better. I, it, it, here's a, there's a, there's a low-def pay-per-view channel on Spectrum here in the metropolitan Louisville area. There's a low-def pay-per-view channel and a high-def pay-per-view channel. And then there's a low-def pay-per-view channel in Spanish, and I'm not sure if there's a high-def pay-per-view channel in Spanish, but the only one that is carrying SummerSlam is in Spanish. Why don't so, you play that in high-def and then blast the uh, peacock from the computer for that audio? I'd like to blast a cock around here, but we'll continue what? on with this this review. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to hear any more details about at least, at least blasting I, the cock. I'm, look, I'm looking at you, Dick. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Logan Paul and Ricochet were talking to each other about their virus match they're going to have at SummerSlam. Everything is going to be all kinds of viruses going on. Viral. Uh, yeah. That's basically, yeah, they're going to have to have this thing in a fucking plastic bubble like the Seinfeld boy so they don't infect everybody. But the exact wording was Logan Paul said, we're going to put on a hell of a match. 
And the gist of this, then they're promoting it this way and they're talking about it this way, is that they're going to do a bunch of spectacular, cunning stunts. And they're gonna and it's gonna go viral. And and Logan Paul will probably video them with his own camera phone while they're having this match or whatever. And and then the only thing they had just talked to each other about all this. And then Logan Paul told Ricochet that the girl ring announcer, what's her name? Samantha Irvin. Okay, well, I thought she was the one that was married to the crocodile hunter. No. What was what was her name? Well, his name was Steve Irwin. I don't remember what her name was, his wife. Well, she lived. Yeah, she's still alive for all I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, for all you know, well, for all everybody knows, she's doing quite well. I don't know that. I don't keep up with the family of the crocodile hunter. I didn't even watch his show when he was it alive. It was a tragic story, though. I'm going to fuck with all this shit under the water. Hopefully nothing. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, it's kind of like, you remember the uh, uh, Yule Gibbons, the uh, guy in the 70s did the commercials for all the cereal because he ate plants and nuts and wild things and had a, he ended up dying of stomach cancer. <laughs> and there was that fucking long distance marathon runner wrote all those fucking books about his running and his health. And he had a heart attack while he was running. What was his name? I don't know. I'll come up with it sooner or later. Anyway, back to this thing. <laughs> so they got into a fight when Logan Paul said that Ricochet is going to have his fiance or financier, whichever one she is, the, the lady ring announcer, Steve Irwin, or the crocodile lady, or whoever her name is. Samantha. Samantha. Samantha Fox. That's Samantha not her. Fox. No? No. Samantha Stevens? Do you know a Samantha after 1986? No. So, <laughs> so, so anyway, she's going to have to announce him as the winner of the match over Ricochet. And that was the point where Ricochet, I've, I've had all I can stands, I can't stands no more. And he just tackled him and they got into a fight for about 10 seconds that turned into sloppy parkour. And it ended up with Logan Paul knocking him out. And he took a selfie of himself standing over Ricochet. So the same punch that they were trying to sell could knock out Roman Reigns uh, here several months ago. It, it did spell the end for Ricochet in this situation. And I'm just Johnny Quest on Saturday mornings in the 60s made me more nervous for somebody's safety than anything going on here. They're just, they're, they're promoting that they're going to have a match where they do a bunch of stupid stunts in cooperation with each other. Your thoughts. I didn't have as big a problem with it as you did. I think Logan Paul is great on a mic, although I agree with you. I, you know, some of the choice of words, he's an outsider and no one has said to him, don't, I mean, in WWE, who's going to say, don't talk about this. Like it's a performance. That's all they want people to talk about it. Like, well, I, I love Logan Paul. If he's wrestling Roman Reigns or he's in the whoever the fuck he's had, instead of just an undercard babyface that he likes to work with because they can do cool parkour with each other. Again, like I it's, said before, who else is he going to beat right now? Look, he, Andre the Giant against Jose Estrada in a fucking you know I don't know. Not unless he was tagging up with Steve King and Frankie Williams, and then maybe it'd be uh, slightly almost even. 
Conquistadors. Okay. But, um, no, I mean, Logan Paul's really good here, and uh, we'll see how this is. Again, they're opening it up. If you are wrestling someone, and you know they're leaving right away afterwards to go do something else, you happy for them, or do you potato them? <laughs> so he can show up with a black eye? He's expecting, okay, I'll wrestle, and I'll be fine. I'll just jump on a plane and head right to Vegas, not... I'll have a broken leg. What will I do? Well, he has, you know, that is a close double booking there. Not a lot of room for error. Ric Flair worked twice in one night in 1986 on a Wednesday night in defending the NWA world title in both Raleigh, North Carolina at the Dorton Arena and I forget the exact town, but somewhere in the state of Florida for, for championship wrestling from Florida. And it was at least as far as Tampa, if not further down. On a Wednesday. On a Wednesday night. they huh. Somehow, they had put the publicity out on both of them, and he was double booked, and he said, fuck it, I'll do it. And they put him on second match in Raleigh, so he went in the ring at 20 after 8, and got out at quarter to 9, was at the Raleigh airport by 9.15, the private plane took off by fucking 9.30, 9.45. He flew a little over an hour. They stalled like fuck in Florida. And he was in the ring to defend the belt before 11 o'clock in that town. He was at the bar by one. Yeah. <laughs> was at the hotel and, by four. <laughs> and back to the Carolinas uh, the next day to pick up the regular schedule. Amazing. Anyhow, so then the next match was Kaiser Wilhelm beat Matt Riddle cleaner than a daggum tooth. Cleaner than a speckled pup. I don't know. I'm so frazzled I can't form a cogent simile. Cleaner than a tooth. Yeah. That's yeah. A, that's a saying I've heard before. Yeah. Well, you'll <laughs> probably hear it again if you keep me on this fucking recording any longer. What does that tell you? I mean, Riddle came back after his sabbatical. And they put him right into the main stuff on Raw. He was with Sammy and Owens doing stuff with the Bloodline at that point. And now he's losing clean to Wilhelm. What do you think? Well, no, it's it's part of, I think they may be recognizing that they have a lot of faith, confidence, time invested in Gunther. And they have made his right-hand man... And I guess the other guy, what's uh, Leonardo da Vinci or which one, whichever yeah. one, he was hurt last time I fucking heard. The other guy just stands there and says nothing. <laughs> well, but he's, he's been hurt. I don't know. Possibly it was a head injury that turned him into a mute. I have no fucking clue. But, <laughs> but with Kaiser here. My German mute friend here agrees with me. German, he will now, he will now make obnoxious gestures in your general direction. <laughs> But what I'm trying to say to you is they may have, it may have registered with them what we've been talking about, the words that have been coming out of our mouths, that they've made Gunther's, both of his flunkies, one is apparently, as we now know, a fucking mute, and the other one gets whipped like a fucking egg every time you see him, and so they're doing something to put a little more heat on the group and maybe make this guy a little more credible is what I was thinking, hopefully. Being optimistic about this program, what I'm saying. Is the one who's there, mute the one who used to be Marcel Marceau in 
NXT. <laughs> it might, yes. I think in, in NXT he was Marcel Marceau, and then he changed his name to Leonardo da Vinci. And now he's mute. And now he's apparently yeah, keep him from changing his name again because his fucking track record is not too good. <laughs> anyway, so that was that. There's nothing wrong with Kaiser's work, um, as I've said, and he's got a interesting, obnoxious, arrogant, like a Nazi fucking lieutenant in the goddamn World War II movie. Air, you can see him with the monocle and the fucking hat. But he just, he never gets anything done. So hopefully they're changing that. Speaking of not getting anything done, did you love the the confrontation between Model Girl and Val Halla? I didn't watch this, although I watched the match. <laughs> at least the end of it. And I only did because we have started hearing from people who say, we know why you guys fast forward past it, but for whatever reason, they're actually starting to get this over with the crowd. So I wanted to see a little bit of what the crowd reactions really were like for them. Well, I don't know if it's this that they're getting over with the crowd or whether I think it's, it's Gable and potentially the things that is going on around him right now. Cause there was a, a big difference in the presentation and the execution. This match should have been executed. It should have gone straight past jury trial into no. Judge says case is closed. Model girl can't... Re it, it, the problem with these two, model girl looks great and works like shit, and Val looks like shit and, and works at least good, if not great. But the model girl is like a whooping crane or an ostrich with they've tried to teach wrestling moves with the long legs and the and did you see she has no a whooping crane <laughs> yes, the fucking, there is no athleticism whatsoever even when she's diving she's the only person i've ever seen who could do a, a low cross body from <laughs> she when she dives she's far closer to the ground than when she was standing on the ground i don't and it's it, the long arms and the, she's not, she's green as grass. And I don't know if she's ever going to get this. I mean, you saw that much, correct? Yes. Okay. So then we got Val Halla, who is fucking, looks like a goddamn disoriented fucking beaver that's been in an explosion at a dam Jeez. with the whole gimmick that she's got on. And this looked like a goddamn, it looked like, it, it, again, the model is a cashier at Walgreens. They gave her a tape of a wrestling match and told her to figure it out. And Val can can work. She's had some experience, so she's trying to move her around. But good Lord. After Model Girl, Jane Cargill now reminds me of Mildred Burke, is all I'm going to say about that thing. I, I, I will have better things to say about old Shoosh Boy later on. Valhalla looks like she's ready to go to Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like somebody partially set her on fire. <laughs> With the, There's black makeup, like it's soot. I don't know what's happening. <clears throat> anyway, we were an hour into the show. And with those basic things having happened and some other clips of things. And then the Judgment Day. And I love the Judgment I love Rhea Ripley. And I love Dominic's whole chicken shit thing. And Damien Priest is a badass. And well, there's there's Finn. 
but it's every week they come out and they just do each one of them does a promo because they do ratings. Apparently this was the highest rated segment of raw this past Monday night for them to just come out and talk. Um, but they come out and talk and then they badmouth Raquel Rodriguez, Gonzalez de Molina. And out she comes and all three of the guys, her Rhea Ripley's fucking her, her boys, her group, her, what do the kids call them? Her posse. I don't know. This fucking mad woman comes out and tackles her and all three of the guys just jump out of the ring and let Raquel beat the shit out of Rhea for a good little while. Rhea told him to leave. Did she? Yeah, if you watch the beginning, she tells them to get out of the ring. She'll take care of it. Oh, God. I don't know. You know, here's the thing. If if some fucking giant woman with the the lat spread or whatever of Raquel came after Suzanne, even if Suzanne told you, hey, I got this, and, and then that girl's just wailing away on her, would you stand there? Well, no, that's a little bit different. That's not uh, on camera. But I think... <laughs> It would have been cool, though, if, like, Dominic and Finn each got Raquel with one arm, because she's bigger than both of them, and then she just, like, slammed them together and went right back to Rhea. Then it would have been cool. Oh, okay. All right. Because um, she's bigger than everyone except Priest. I agree it would have been cool if she if she scoop-slammed Dominic. That would help both of their gimmicks. I don't know if she needs to be throwing any two of them around. But anyway, Raquel wailed away on Rhea, and then Rhea clipped Raquel's leg and then the official showed up and that was about 12 minutes for all that to happen and the judgment day is over they've got at least a group on raw now to match not maybe not match but to the 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 raw version of the bloodline on smackdown people are interested in what's going on because Rhea's a star and dominic has heat and he's the darling chicken shit of the moment and and Priest is going to end up being the, what do they, they say, the sleeper out of the group in terms of he's going to be a top-level guy here. If he if they don't consider him already, they will soon. But but I get tired of them just coming out and talking to, until somebody comes out and gets in a fight with them every week. You know, you say Rhea's a star. It's easy to miss the fact that you've been saying that since before everyone treated her that way. She is now the most over woman in the entire business. Well, just who couldn't see that coming? Well, Besides, I mean, I mean, gee, many. It's not like I'm Nostra dumbass or anything. Even though I predicted this when she was still on NXT of what three years ago, that she would be the biggest female star in the business and then graduate into movies, major motion pictures and sitcoms. Well, it was plain as the nose on everybody's face. I think everybody was just lying and trying to disagree with me that's why they weren't saying it you know a lot of this and not just this but a lot of things you see like even with the bloodline it's so reminiscent of like the nwo at the peak of nitro you knew that like in the middle of the show hogan and every one of these flunkies and you know some other like nash and hall were main eventers but you know yeah. bagwell and virgil and everyone else they were all going to come out there and for 10 minutes they were going to talk in the ring and it may not be anything new or anything exciting, but you're going to get to see them and maybe it'll lead to something at the end of the show. That's what this is with the judgment day. They get them out there. They have the most over female in the business. Dominic started this trend of people just booing nonstop. 
And he started it because he's been fantastic in his role. Priest, unless something goes wrong, Priest is, you know, I think going to be in the main event somewhere soon. And, you know, Bauer they like to, and he's, actually, I think Bauer's been doing a pretty good job with this Rollins stuff, all things considered. He pointed out how ridiculous Rollins is. You're not crazy. You're pretending to be crazy, which is exactly right. <laughs> but, you know, it's like the NWO. They come out there, and like you said, they pop the rating. People want to see them. They're young. You got two of the youngest people in the business on the main roster in the same group. How about that? So, uh, you know, the Judgment Day are one of the hot things. You know, we'll talk about it in a little while, but underneath everyone's nose, it happened. Wrestling got hot again, and the Judgment Day are a big part of it. Well, did wrestling get hot again, or did the WWE get hot again? Very good point. We'll discuss. Who else's, who else's crotch is on fire right now? Anyway, you belabored me on this because Ronda and Shayna, they did sit-down packages on their history from the UFC and, and the Ultimate Fighter to today. And it's normally the kind of thing that I like and for the kind of people who like that kind. But in this case, I'm so past giving a shit that I was like, please, I want to get to fucking Gunther and Brock and Cody, anything good. And so, and you said this <laughs> This was the best thing they've done since Ronda's come back to the business. This is the best thing they've done since her first run. It was the best video package they've done about Ronda. It was the best thing they've done with Shayna Baszler. It made you care about what's going on. It made you understand what the hell was going on. Talked about their history. I mean, you see Marina Shafir and uh, I forget the other girl's name. In some of the photos, they're talking about their real history. How she was Ronda's sparring partner. Ronda would kick her ass every single day. And then her and her other friends got to live with Ronda. So Ronda could kick their ass every day. And it all led into this. They both cried in these videos. I hope there's a way we can get you to see it because it was, it was the, and Ronda's leaving apparently. It was the best thing they've done yeah. with Ronda. It was incredible. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. We're like a fucking a week away from her being done and we suddenly see all this shit that would have hooked everybody. Had we had an inkling of all these things that they could reveal. Why did they wait till the last minute, I wonder? Because I almost zoomed past it and I said, you know what, let me stop and see. And they hooked me. It was almost like a UFC video more than a WWE video. It was great. It was great. Uh, I'll, I'll check and see if one of the DVRs in the house has still got some of these elements on it. I try to, I don't want to you know, fill up my DVR with stuff I'm never going to watch again. And I'm so excited to get rid of these shows after I watch them. But nevertheless, this is where Imperium confronted Shush Boy and company, Fat Otis and Model Girl, and basically said that they didn't like them because they were turning the show into a joke. <laughs> That's why we all don't like them. And they belittled Chad, that's not a pun. And basically the the challenge was laid out or the statement was made or whatever that he can't last five minutes with Gunther. And so later on, that's what we're gonna see is old Shoosh boy get five minutes with Gunther. And so I was interested in that because it's Gunther. I will at this point I'll watch Gunther. Eat a goddamn pot roast. I don't care because he's always good. But uh, then uh, 
Did you see Tommaso Champa? You know what? I hate to say it. This was the match I fast forwarded through. Well, and, I li- and I like both guys, but there were so many other things on the show that actually meant something that I fast forwarded through. Well, I didn't watch it either because I knew what was going to happen because th- they had shaky Nakamura, this broken down senior citizen in a scuba diving suit, beat Tommaso Champa with a kind of a schoolboy and pulled the trunks. And because he's still mad at Bronson Reed. But again, love Champa. Wish we saw him and actually doing something every so often. But we finally got to Brock. And Brian, I want you to tell me what you what you think about this. It was an in ring Brock does his entrance and he's gonna do an in-ring promo and he it kind of started, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Brock Lesnar, but without the the overwhelming emotion and smarminess of Paul. And he gave his credentials, and it was kind of a matter-of-fact thing. I think he claimed to be the WWE champion, but uh, UFC champion, NCAA champion, and the... <sighs> There was a concept here. Maybe he was. Maybe they told him go out there and be matter of fact. Just say this is, this is my business. It's business with me. And this Saturday I'm going to get paid to go out there and kick Cody Rhodes's ass. And this Saturday Cody Rhodes gets paid to get his ass kicked by Brock Lesnar because it's business. But he was so matter of fact and kind of more monotone than normally. Wasn't that laughing? you know, over-the-top hillbilly Brock, that the people whatted the fuck out of him. And I don't know if necessarily if this the whatting was working, even though he tried to... It was like he was giving them the opening. He'd say three or four words and stop so they could what since they were doing it anyway, but I don't know if it was helping him out. It was an odd... But, but otherwise, uh, he called Cody out, said, if if you want to tell me otherwise that I'm otherwise than I'm going to beat you, then come on out here and I'll respect that and shake your hand or, and see you Saturday. Or if you don't, I'm still going to see you Saturday. You got five seconds. And Cody's music was playing at three. But what, what did you think of Brock's? Other than the what chance, and to be honest, I don't know if there's anything that Brock would have come out there and done that they wouldn't have done it. Sometimes the crowd is just ready for that. And yeah. They're going to do it. I actually thought it was pretty effective. Him coming out there and saying, I'm Brock Lesnar. I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. You got to be kidding me. You know, like, I think that's actually effective as opposed to yelling. Well, I I, know I didn't mean he didn't have to yell. I like the, the idea that he's coming out and listing his credentials and saying that it's, you know, all business or whatever. But I thought that he he geared it back to the point where he didn't really have a lot of expressions and he wasn't really, he would just, and he just went with the stopping. So they'd what he just kind of went with it. He didn't have to be fucking foaming at the mouth. I would think he'd be more condescending maybe about just put some little well emotion in there. He was trying to lull in his own way, Cody out for the handshake. And I have to be honest, that's the part I really had a problem with the fact that Cody, after everything that's happened and getting beaten up in front of his mother would even want to come out there and shake his hand. (laughs) Well, that's the thing is there we get to part two, the second half. 
because Cody came out and he walked around the ring and he's eyeballing him, you know, like he's like he would eyeball somebody that has broken his arm in attacks and jumped him from behind and done whatever. And he got in cautiously, stepped in carefully, didn't take his eyes off. He had the, the face to face and then stuck his hand out for, like you said, to shake the guy's hand after he F5'd him in front of his mother. Okay. But they did the handshake and then they did the close talking. And Cody whispered something in Brock's ear, and Brock gave him the shoulder and walked out of the ring. And that's when, as Brock has gotten out of the ring and he's walking away from the ring, Cody hits the far ropes, runs across, dives over, and fucking tackles the babyface, jumps the heel from behind, and turns around for it and gets his fucking ass kicked. Because that, as soon as the dive, boom, he got at him throwing some punches, and Brock just picked him up and drove him into the post and hit him with the stairs and hit him with the stairs again and went back and hit him with the stairs again and then went to walk off a time or two and he'd come back and fucking do something else. And then he threw him in the ring and F5'd him. So I don't know how I feel about the baby face jumping the heel from behind when he's walking away and then getting the shit kicked out of him convincingly and left laying there when everything Cody usually does is so Brock has gotten a ton of heat on him. I don't know why that he had to leave him face first the, the week before the goddamn show instead of, would this not have been the time traditionally that most bookers would have given the people a little hope that the baby face is going to slay the dragon? I personally think you needed a fired up promo from at least Cody before the event. You needed something from Brock so you'd want to see him get his ass kicked and maybe you think it could possibly happen. I also have a problem the week of the event doing the arm again. How many times is this yeah. train killer going to destroy this guy's arm before the match. Like, if it happens one time a month out, it makes some sense. Okay, will he be ready? It happened then, then it happened again, now it happened now. Three times. And I th that's, that's the thing, is that at this point, it's, you know, the week from the big match, and we've said that we believe that uh, Cody needs to decis more decisively win this thing than than what he he did before to because it's the rubber match but at the same time you know how believable have we gotten when he could brock continues to just beat the shit and beat the shit out of him and try to break the arm and hit the arm with sledgehammers and jackhammers and whatever uh, i think a promo like you said a promo from cody would have, if I wasn't already going to buy the thing or watch the thing, a promo from Cody, as well as a promo from Brock, would have done more than to, for me to see Brock just beat the piss out of him again. Yeah. But anyway, the thing I was waiting for 
was the five-minute match between Gunther and Gable. And have you looked up Williams yet? No, I have not. Williams? Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Last did not remember the, the famous, the infamous, the, the wonderfully historic Gunther Gable Williams. That's right. This is a correct statement. I did not know who that was. And I can't believe now that you haven't looked him up to fucking... You told me who it was. You answered yourself. my question. Who is that? He is one of the... When I was a kid, the great animal trainer. He trained the lions and the tigers and the bears. Oh, my. He was at the circus. He was a big... He was in all the commercials. Gunther, Gable, Williams. He was even on, on other television. Sorry, I don't know the animal trainers from the 1930s. Uh, next time, hey, I'll, uh, I'll study up I, on them. Famous animal television. trainers. Oh, you I did said say. television, not radio. I meant 40s. All right. Late 40s. Anyway, so Gunther is brilliant. We've, we've established that. And now I will call shoosh boy Chad Gable, because apparently now they have somehow decided that they're going to give this guy another chance to actually do something instead of be the biggest joke in the company. He's a great athlete. He's the one that had the matches in NXT with um, FTR, with him and Jordan. American but, Alpha. Yes. But unfortunately, I don't know whether he pissed in Vince's post-toasties or what he did to deserve what he's had to do, but they've, you know... They've made him meaningless. And this is, you know, who knows what, is this a, a chance to rehabilitate him or is this just something they're going to do for one week? I don't know. But anyway, apparently the people are getting to like him because they feel sorry for him or something. Because I don't know why they would be liking the, what's been presented, but the, the is it a sympathy thing for this guy who deserves better? Kind of maybe L.A. Knight got some sympathy for having to be Max Dupree, which was the only thing that was maybe worse than this. You know, I think somehow where we were focusing on all the stuff that was semi-serious or in Cody's case, serious stuff, the comedy stuff got over with their fans <laughs> because that, that's all it was. They were doing the comedy segment every show and the comedy feud, and somehow it turned into the fans getting behind them. Well, in whatever reason, hopefully this is the, the start of something better for, and no more shooshes. I don't know. But Gable's great as an athlete. And Gunther is perfect, as we've said, at working with anybody of any different size um, and selling or reacting appropriately, registering whatever. And Gunther was controlling this for the first two and a half minutes, right? Out of the five, because he's bigger and he's stronger. And they were doing nice wrestling. Gable has a great bridge, right? Wrestler's bridge. And then he started having Gable fight back from underneath a bit. Gable sold great. And then finally, Gunther goes for the powerbomb with a little over a minute left. And Gable rolled out of it and got the ankle lock and then started a little comeback but he got caught in a fucking sleeper and they've got 20 seconds left. So they're timing this perfectly. And then Gable is fading, but at 10 seconds of uh, Gunther switches around, goes for the power bomb, but Gable fights out and both of them take the bump over the top rope and Gable slides in the time runs out and Gable wins the thing. 
which he won, but obviously didn't beat Gunther, didn't pin him, but he won the thing. He lasted the five minutes. Exactly. And the place went crazy. Because that, that was obviously not what Gunther had wanted, and, and pomposity has gotten the piss taken out of it. If we could stop for one second, between yes. the backstage promo and beyond the match, the time in between the match and the you know restart, Gunther, his facial reactions, his tone on the mic, we always talk about him in the ring, but he's nailing everything else. Yeah, it, it, he is who he is purported to be. He, he understands how to project that. And, you know, you can't really find any point in a match where he doesn't have the right expression on his face or he's not registering what's happening the right way. And that's what Gunther, now he wanted more time. And, you know, I, I think they probably, they restarted it a little, a little easily, a little quickly in terms of, you know, without some type of, you know, uh, con conversation amongst everybody at ringside, like, what do we do? What do we do? But otherwise, they restart the thing, and then they go to the break, and I'm like, fuck! I want to see this! Don't go to the fucking break! But anyway, that's obviously the the feeling that they want people to have, but it would be wonderful if they let something actually fucking register when this guy's getting over. But he's still getting over. He's getting over with people in the building. Anyway, when they come back, again, Gable's still fighting from underneath, but every time Gunther will hit one of those fucking chops, they're bam. But then Gable, when he'd have an opportunity, started working on Gunther's arm. Maybe, you know, try to get a fucking submission. And they did a nice superplex off the top uh, that he gave Gunther and both of them sold. And then they, they, there was Germans going on. Gable. I think he did two of them, but one of them, he picked Gunther up and just bridged him over. It was tremendous. Several two counts, back and forth. And then Gunther finally just leveled him with about three chops and hit the powerbomb one, two, three. So, obviously, that was what they had to do. They, you know, they're trying to make Gable, but they can't go insane and beat Gunther. And they got to protect that powerbomb. But it shows what Gable can do, and I don't what the what the fuck have they just now figured this out? Is it is it too late? I don't think it's too late. If they continue in this tone next week and the week after, if Otis all of a sudden starts slowly dropping the comedy elements that are over the top, you know he's another guy with legit credentials. These guys go back. Then it's not crazy, and it would be nice to see him get a chance here. If you're WWE and you're booking next week's show, what does Gable come out and do? What does he say about it? Is it, because it's not I beat you within 10 minutes or something, it's I lasted five minutes, but then you beat me. So what exactly does he say in terms of wanting a rematch because he showed he could last the five, but not the 10? I mean, what do you say? Well, first of all, I think we're done with the shoosh, um, at least in terms of being used to antagonize the audience, because that now that they're taking to them somewhat, they want him to be the fans to like him and to be a baby face. He might come out sometime and say shoosh to the fucking heels and then it'll get a big pop, but he's got to come. He's got to come out and say, Hey, Gunther's acting like he, he won or he proved his point. I proved my point. 
he said that he couldn't or that I couldn't last five minutes with him. And I said, I could. And I did that. I didn't say I could beat him. I didn't even say he couldn't beat me. I did that frame it that way. But at the same time, that's when, if you wanted to continue it, you know, then you, you know, that maybe that's why they're building a uh, Kaiser Wilhelm up because all right, well then you say, well, look here, if you, if you can beat, or if you can last 10 minutes with Kaiser Wilhelm, then I'll give you another chance to blah, 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 or something and continue it that way. So you're not just doing it every week, but yeah, Gable has to come out and crow about it. Then you have the heel shush him and he slaps the heel. There you go. And then they, they have a stipulation where the loser has to sit down and watch model girl wrestle. You know what the problem too is? You just presented a scenario. I'm thinking of scenarios. It seems like based on what they did on Raw, WWE would think there was more in the tank for this whole thing. I'm interested to see where this will go. I'm not interested in Gunther and Drew McIntyre. Isn't that the match at SummerSlam? <laughs> yeah, and, and you know what? Even the fans on Twitter, since we've mentioned that, they can't really figure out what's the matter with Drew either. Just been around and nothing new. Oh, well. Um, at this point, there was 50 minutes left into the show. We'd already been past two hours to get to that point, and I remembered I had to rub Harley's belly. Did I miss anything else? Was there anything of note? I wouldn't say anything of note other than I thought the Becky Lynch confrontation with Trish Stratus and Zoe Stark leading to Pierce having a thing backstage with Trish and Zoe. I thought that was good, but I've liked that a little bit more than you in terms of the actual feud. Well, you know, as a matter of fact, come to think of, I was zipping past a little bit of that. I thought I was actually watching MeTV and an old episode of Petticoat Junction. <laughs> come on. The, the, co the color is much wrong. better on this show. And no, the color was better back in the 60s. It was all pastels. Come ride the little train that is rolling down the tracks to the junction. Forget about your cares. It is time to relax at the junction. Lots of girls, you bet. And even more when you get to the junction. Petticoat Junction. Oh, God. Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's exactly what, what I thought did. about when I saw Pierce and uh, Trish and Zoe. I thought about Petticoat Junction. Well, Adam Pierce looks a little bit like Uncle Joe, who's a moving kind of slow at the <laughs> junction. <laughs> All right. Well, I thought that was a good segment, and you didn't watch the main event, and I kind of didn't care for it either. So that right. was raw. There you go. That was a very raw, raw. Let's get uh, the reviews out of the way and then get a couple of other topics before we get out of here. We have traveled through time, of course. AEW Dynamite had another banner episode last night. Oh, good Lord. Coming from Tampa, Florida on the 2nd of August. Well, as the old saying goes, if brains were dynamite, they couldn't blow their nose over there on Wednesday nights. But we won't be so unkind so far, before we mention that this was the 200th episode of Dynamite, and I would like to get, recognize, I saw this on, on Twitter this morning, in honor of the 200 episodes that have aired of AEW Dynamite, uh, a Twitter account, I wrote it down, the, the name is Twinkle Toes McFinger Bang, but it's at Ring of Botches. So if anybody wants to look at this before it gets taken down, they compiled five different videos 
celebrating the top 200 botches on AEW over the over the years and oh wow it was like 2 minutes and 18 seconds or whatever you can put on Twitter five different videos and it never stopped coming many of them set to heaven is a place on earth but just the fact that nobody has has had a tragedy let's put it that way is just in fucking credible and or on the other side of the fence the the incredible shit that they've done that didn't come within a fucking half a mile of anybody that they've sold was also incredible but it was more cringy watching the but the, this was a hell of a piece of work to compile this and even numbered them on the screen, counting down 200, 199, 198. It was amazing. In order so then, of in order of appearance, not in order of like quality of the I, botch. I, right? I don't. I well, that would be subjective. I don't even know if it was in order of appearance. I, it was in order of one came after another one, and there was two hundred of them. Do you think there should be star ratings for botches? I don't think we ought to open that can of peas or worms or. <laughs> Whatever insect or mammal life may lie within <laughs> that fucking can. Speaking of insect and mammal life, we had both of them represented with Chris Jericho and Don Fallis were out there. Which one is the mammal and which one is the insect? <laughs> um, so remember this tag team match was set up where Don said... Don said, team up with a member of my family just to see if this thing fits. And and Jericho said, okay, so it's Jericho and take a shit. And then Don surprised Jericho with the opponents were Garcia and Guevara. And that's not a Hispanic remake of Cagney and Lacey. That's Sammy Guevara and Danny Garcia, the rock's ex-wife. And same, they same name, different person, obviously. Are there, is that two different people? She's much bigger. Okay. So they beat up Jericho for a while. A lot of chops in this match. And I got to be honest with you, I'm not a fan of Garcia's little dance there. But take a shit. Every time he gets in the ring, he looks the best of anybody. He's got the size. He's in shape. He's got an intriguing. He's a good looking. A young man, but he's got that look like if you put him in a fucking suit, he's a goddamn high-level Japanese Yakuza guy. He's not one of the fucking finger cutters. He's got personality, and he moves across the ring like crazy. And th there were two segments of this match. The first segment, there it wasn't nothing to write home about. Uh, the second segment, they got a slow heat on... Garcia, at one point, Jericho went for the line salt. Garcia was supposed to raise his knees, but he was, he was, where Jericho had left him, he was too far in the middle of the ring. So Jericho did the line salt and landed with his knees on Garcia. But since Garcia was supposed to raise his knees, Jericho sold it like he'd landed on. And then they made simultaneous cold tags. And Garcia made a comeback with dives. Dive, dive, dive. Can you imagine? If you put any of these fucking AEW wrestlers in the Navy and had them on a submarine, every if somebody said, dive, 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 it looked like a goddamn chaos at Romper Room. 
Anyway, so Sammy did a backflip off the top rope to the floor onto Tega shit and elbowed Tega shit right in a fucking mush, right in the mouth. And he goes down, whoa, fuck. I told you, elbows, knees, 200 pounds almost of human beings spinning from 12 feet in the air. You want to catch the motherfucker? So then Garcia got a sharpshooter while the referee's attention was elsewhere, and Don got the bat and hit Garcia in the head with it and broke the hold, and Jericho saw it and was shocked and concerned and then covered him anyway, one, two, three. So there, there was nothing, there was nothing silly, and they didn't use furniture. But it was a standard tag team match, and there's more strife now because later on in a backstage confrontation, Daddy Mac Mac Daddy tells Jericho there's a mandatory Jericho Appreciators meeting next week, and he needs to be there. So obviously, there's going to be repercussions for this perceived treachery. Brian, what do you think? Should they announce that they're staying together as a faction, but without him? So they'll just be like the non-appreciators? <laughs> well, no, then they're just appreciators. If you take the Jericho out of the Jericho Appreciation Society, you go from, from jazz to just ass. But what if... Actually, that may be an appropriate name. They all look like a big group of ass. All right. Well, that was the opening of the show. I agree with you about Takeshita. Takeshita's really good. He deserves better. You know, I tried to give them a little bit of credit for those early weeks after his heel turn where he came out with Don Callis and they gave him the dark, ominous drone music and Takeshita looked like a badass and he was winning. Then they started having him get his ass kicked a little bit by the Bucks or whatever it was. And now he's doing this. He's just lost in the middle of all this crap. They should be doing something with just him. Yeah. He, as a matter of fact, why could we not find out that Takeshita, as they call him, even though we know his real name. As they call him, who, his parents? Yeah. Every, everyone who's known him his entire life. Yeah, all those people, <laughs> even though we know his real name, they call him that. Why couldn't we find out that not only does he, is he Japanese and has just come here, but that also that his family is connected and he could wear that fucking, you know, the the leather and the fucking Japanese gangster looking shit. And at some point, and he obviously has a ton of money because his family's connected. So he's he's got Don as his, you know, business manager for because America American <laughs> speak American because English is a second language. But Don's doing his business, but he's got all kinds of money. And, he, and he's got women. They could have the women around him, the limousines. And then if somebody fucks with him, he could go to cut off their fucking finger. See, I think that's the only thing. I think there's a reason why none of the Japanese wrestlers who ever intend on living again in Japan ever do anything that's Yakuza-based on American TV. Well, then couldn't he do everything except try to cut off somebody's yes. finger? Otherwise, I think it would be good. And, and his family's just rich the old-fashioned way. Otherwise, he's just a second fiddle in the middle of Jericho's drama feud. He could be a rich kid whose father has bought his way into wrestling. And he's got all the limousines and the private planes and <laughs> women hanging off of him and all these suits and everything. Is this Because of, of his rich father. 
If you substitute the word father for mother, you're fantasy booking the first year of Jim Cornette. Well, no, if you substitute the word father for the word shad, you're just fucking... <laughs> said, Tony don't have the women, and let, well, his father's got a lot of money. Tony may have the women, too, but he doesn't look as good in a suit. But you see where I'm going with this. Make the fucking guy star. But is this doing it, being in the middle of this Jericho stuff? Because the focus went from him and Don Callis to Callis and Jericho right away. Yeah. And without, did we ever see Don in Take's corner just with Take winning a, a significant match? I think that like first week. And it was like, okay, they're trying it with no, this No, I guy. mean, it was a job guy. I'm talking about a significant match that's been advertised and was a, an accomplishment of some kind. I think he'd beat a job guy. Well, it was definitely a job match, but I don't think he's had a significant match that was one-on-one -on -one with Callis. And if they have, it was on the Friday Has night Has he had a something. significant match with one-on-one -on -one with anybody that he's won? Take a shit. I don't know. Well, there you go. So, so already he's in good hands. Now we'll move on to the next thing. And speaking of moving on to the next thing, and I just mentioned him a few minutes ago, you do it, Brian. Thanks, guys. Well, there, there you have it, Tony Khan, to come out on the... They've changed the, the view on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. It was a little closer shot, but he's, he's... And they do the nice soft focus in the background with the pleasing lights, so you can't really tell whether it's a green screen or not. And he read a slow-moving teleprompter statement introducing, uh, thanking everybody, first of all, for watching. And boy, I don't know how you could ever express enough gratitude for people watching this particular program. I am a real boy. I have emotion and feeling, just like you. And right before his fucking, his spring in the back wound all the way down and he stopped being <laughs> able to talk, he, he introduced a package of... Of highlights from the first 200 episodes, which contained a lot of really stupid, recklessly dangerous spots, uh, dumb bumps, and garbage matches. And that was about 80% of it. And you had a couple of actual highlights of real stars just being real stars, but mostly it was just chaos and mayhem. You know, I liked it. I'm, I'm always a sucker for these kind of retrospective videos. So even though it was filled with a lot of garbage shit, do you, mean, do you mean in a two-and-a-half-minute video of the first 200 episodes, we needed to see the Puddin' Gang pull up in his mother's minivan? I think if you were going to do an encapsulation of 200 episodes of this show, that has to be there. How many times has it been on this show? I, think, I don't think we should do an encapsulation. I think we should do an incarceration of 200 episodes of this show. They should be quarantined somewhere. How many drive-ins? How many drive-ins did she have? Oh, it, it, what, at least four or five. Right. So you have to show her. You have to show that. Oh, my God. But yeah, there was a lot of stuff I'd completely forgotten about. Mike Tyson and his crew facing off with Jericho that went nowhere. <laughs> and of course, Shaq and Jade, which went nowhere. Went nowhere. <laughs> and Cody and Brandy. It was good that, you know what? That was one of the things I did like to see, that they showed Cody in there. They showed Brandy in there. Because uh, they are an important part of the story. and. Uh, like I said, I like these kind of things. When you did the one at the end of 1992, it's one of my favorite things ever when I was like tape trading to uh, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, actually. Did you actually. see anybody's mother pull up 
to drop them off at the matches in that uh, video that I did. Well, there was that one time where uh, Ron Garvin uh, had a flat tire and uh, his mom drove him. No, I don't <laughs> know. Sp- no. Speaking of flat tires, perfect segue to Jack Perry. Now, Tony Schiavone was in the ring and he introduced uh, the former Jungle Boy. Here came Jack down to the ring and immediately snatched the microphone away from Tony and Tony kept talking into his empty hand. And then... (laughs) (laughs) He really did. I know, I know. (laughs) And then he just stood there while Jack Perry called out Jerry Lynn. And remember last week, Jerry Lynn had taken exception... Last week when we left the Space Family Robinson, Jerry Lynn had taken exception to Jack Perry maligning the ECW generation of wrestlers. And he'd come out and taken him to task for that. And Jack Perry said, well, if you show up next week, then I may kick your ass or something to that effect. And I honestly, I didn't think it through. I thought we were going to get a match. And then I remembered when Jerry came out in street clothes and did his promo that he has a bad neck and that's why he retired. But I was thinking maybe he's going to have, well, you know, see if he can teach the kid anything. So we're not going to get a match. He comes out in street clothes and he said, if he beat Jack up, it would be child abuse, which is actually probably pretty close to the truth. But then he, because he's got the bad neck and the pins and et cetera, he called a friend from ECW. And this was where it wasn't really clearly laid out. He He's called a friend <laughs> that used to work for ECW. And he said, so what do you say, Jungle? And I was like, to what? What? It, it, there wasn't really a thing for him to respond to there. But then the fans started chanting RVD before any music hit, and then suddenly the music hit, and it was RVD. How did they know? His old music, too, from ECW. I, I, I'm not an expert on that. Well, but Tony, Tony is, and Tony went and got the license for it. How is this a band that he would have had to pay significant money to, or is this just somebody who was happy to get the work? No, I'm pretty, I think it was Pantera, so I think it was a I, band that I, was significant. I don't know how, because when he said someone else from ECW, my mind immediately went to, like, we just talked about the Bigelow dark side. Who's still standing that could work a match? I I think Sabu can't work a match right now. Right. uh, At least on a national uh, television show. Uh, He was was on the show also in a completely different situation here not long ago and, and didn't light the world on fire with falling off the top rope. But. So I didn't know. And the fans started chanting RVD and I just seen something he did. At least I just saw the video. I don't know if it's new or not that inside the ropes did an interview with RVD over in England. And I was watching, and I was like, man, you know, he still looks like RVD. You know, like it just, he looks like the same guy. So when the music hit and the place popped, they were in on it. But uh, yeah, RVD still standing from ECW. I just, again, I just, I was like, well, fuck, they've they've ruined their goddamn surprise here. But maybe people didn't hear it. Anyway, out he came. And he got face-to-face with Jack Perry, and Jack Perry rolled out and walked off. And as RVD and Jerry Lynn were conversing in the ring, Perry comes back with a chair and swings it, but RVD ducks the chair jumps up and does a spin kick, but Jack Perry ducks that, bails to the floor, and leaves. And 
I get later on, we'll find out we're going to get a match next week. Rob Van Dam has, has always stayed in shape with his flexibility and et cetera. Here he lived. Did it look like he was walking in a, I don't know how to phrase it. I don't want to make it sound like he was a cripple, but was he walking a little crooked? Is he still wrestling and having matches? And is that a good thing for him to want to do on a national TV show against this kid 30 years younger than him? I don't, I haven't seen Rob work in ages and eons. I haven't seen him work. I don't think since he left WWE the last time, I believe he went to impact and he's done various other things. I don't know if he's working a full-time schedule wrestling right now, but I would have to think there has to be a way to get something good out of at least, I'm not saying go 20 minutes. Yeah. Well, hopefully nobody will say that about any of these matches. But a good few minutes uh, with Rob Van Dam, you'll get, you know, people will be happy to see him and they'll be upset when Jungle Boy pins him. And I'm not going to completely shit Hope- once again. Hopefully will, will that be the finish? I'm not going to shit on it now, especially if they don't go too long. And especially if Jungle, but if Jungle Boy doesn't win... Holy free holy. No, but every week, I've enjoyed Jungle Boy's heel stuff so far, but every week he leans into it a little bit more. Just a little bit more. There's a little bit more than it was the last week. So I'm still optimistic this could work out and be something. It sounds like a helicopter leaning into your property up there. Is somebody, did you get the helipad opened up on the south wing? The one time I say nothing about the background noise is the one time you mentioned the background noise. So now I'm that's the only off. time I've heard it. God damn it. Anyway, um, all right, let's get to the next part of this thing. And again, w- folks, we have not got the ratings yet. This just happened last night. Ratings haven't come out, but we are both, Brian and I, just salivating to find this out because there's limits to human endurance. I mean, if you were confined to a hospital bed in a medically induced coma and could not reach the remote or use telekinesis to will the channel to change, you may have watched the rest of this program. But this one right here, triple threat, anything goes, no DQ, lazy booking. My specialty. Trent of the Puddin' Gang. Penthouse with Alex. Knock, knock. And you heard him, folks. The plumber, John Moxley. Captain Blood. (sighs) Didn't they just do last week a triple threat tag team match (laughs) with these guys and three more guys? You know what? It was midway through this match where I realized it wasn't a rematch. There was no other tag team. It was just a singles three-way. They went from from a three-way tag team match last week that's no DQ, anything goes, to this week, a triple threat, anything goes, no DQ singles match with half of the people that were in the match last week. And so to make up for it, there was more garbage here and more. Again, it was the same garbage match you would expect from three guys who are either rotten workers, have no common sense, or work for a company run by a mark, or in some cases, all three. The first two moves. I'm sorry, John, I didn't mean to to interrupt you. Checkmate. The... the, (laughs) The thing is, 
the first they started fighting before the plumber even got to the goddamn ring as far as i can recall but they were all on the floor that's where the match started and the first two moves of the match were dives people were diving before they even fucking said hello and then I think Penthouse brought in a garbage can and a lid, and that's when the plumber pulled out a barbed wire two-by-four. And Penthouse got a table. No, it was two tables, and they were setting them up at ringside while the fucking plumber had already raked the barbed wire over Jobber Trent's head, so he was bleeding. And they've got job guys that matter not for anything getting color on their television just to satisfy Moxley and his fucking delusions, dementia, warpness, whatever the fuck. And again, the Lucha Brothers, we've seen them four fucking years. Nobody knows what they They can take their masks off next week and give them two different names, and they could run for four more years as different people. But goddamn, we've seen everything they've got going on. This is constantly the same, and it devalues and diminishes the people with actual talent that are trying their best to get over on this program because Tony indulges these fucking idiots in more tables. And the, the plumber got superplexed off the top rope through tables, but he was up moments later. Trent let fucking Penthouse give him a Canadian destroyer off the top rope through a table. The plumber poured out a bag of thumbtacks. They all rolled around in them, and then the plumber made sure to take a big bump in them so he could have a hundred of them sticking in his back. Renee Moxley Good looks like a normal fucking human being. How does she tolerate this fucking guy in the other end of the house? It, it'd be like living with the fucking freaks in the circus. And then they all stood there and chopped each other. And then the plumber DDT'd penthouse and Trent <laughs> stole the win. The first match that Trent has won on Dynamite in three years is a garbage match where he beats, in effect, the guy that's a former AEW world champion is supposed to be one of the top names in the company, this buggy-whipped-armed, fucking sunken-chested, goddamn balding fucking geek from Cincinnati. Mitchell. And then all the partners came down, and they all got in a fake-looking fight on the floor that went forever with more furniture. And then Moxley... Remember I told you last week it looks like Moxley got hot at old pockets because he fucking got up from out from under him and just walked off on their fight. This time pockets right in the middle of the ring gave Moxley the Superman punch and Moxley did the fucking drunk legged cell and staggered and went through the ropes and landed on his feet. Never went down from this fucking goofs punch. Jake Roberts and Muhammad Ali. There you go. Nor the Barbarians bump it all over the place. Jake won't go down. <laughs> Except Jake's response was, I'm coming back and he's not. Well, both these motherfuckers are coming back. I think maybe Moxley thinks now he's too badass to go down for the fucking phony move of a fucking mascot. But nevertheless, then Muffin Top, old Muffin Top Taylor of the Puddin' Gang, he got on the microphone and made sure to say, God damn. And they're going to have some match on the Friday show that nobody watches. I would fire the fucking bunch of these morons, except I, it, 
If I was Tony, I couldn't fire him because I'm the one that probably said, oh, yeah, go out and do all this stupid shit and cuss on my television. Bleed for no reason. You know, the most infuriating thing may be having had to sit through this putrid series of matches so far that they're sending everyone to Friday night to see the conclusion of this, which means no one's going to be watching. <laughs> That's just a waste of our time. At least do it next week on this show. Yes. It, it, they, again, nobody wants to see any more of that to begin with, but even if it was good, they're probably not, not going to watch the Friday night show because it's not going to be as good as the Saturday night show, and it's usually not even as good as the Wednesday night show. So you've already shot yourself in the dick on Friday night. So don't advertise something that nobody's going to fucking bother to partake in anyway on this thing. And then just, we never see the resolution. And it's not just us. It's, what is it, uh, 35 or 40% of the, or is it that much of the Wednesday night audience actually watches Friday? Oh, I got to check what the numbers are. Everything else is going up. Every other show, like NXT's been going up. We have to talk about that at some point on a future show. Rampage is the one that, it's like it barely exists. We can hope. Anyway, <laughs> I then wrote, thank God, on the night of 1,000 jobbers, here comes MJF's music. And... Help me figure this one out, Brian. He comes out and he's the smiling MJF, you know, and and uh, we're continuing on with this transformation in his personality. But he said that not only does he have ADD, and I'm thinking, if this motherfucker has ADD, everyone should aspire to have ADD. He's the quickest, smartest, most clever fucking guy in the company and gets everything about the wrestling business isn't add supposed to be harmful in some way i wouldn't say harmful it's just something that uh it's a trait i don't know how to describe it but i wouldn't say harmful well he uh, he says he not only does he have add but he also has rejection sensitive disorder which means he can't regulate rejection or rejection, I'm, I was making notes, because I was trying to, goddamn, this all of a sudden turned into the fucking Lifetime Network medical channel here. He can't regulate rejection-based behavior. And as he's doing this talk, I'm writing, what the fuck is this? And he's he's been bullied, abused, lied to, and cheated on, and kids threw quarters at him and said, pick him up, Jew boy, I remember hearing that before. And it made him think that everyone was a scumbag and he had to backstab people before they backstabbed him. And this is how he's pouring his heart out to people. And I wrote, is he trying to turn babyface by saying he's got mental problems? He gets his feelings hurt easy and he became a criminal because people called him names. Is that what today's audience wants in a hero? I don't know. In what's a hero, no. In a baby face, maybe. Uh, but anyway, being a scumbag is easy. What's hard is being vulnerable and open. There's a lot of fucking feelings and sensitivity being talked about on this program lately. Listen, uh, if you're going to turn baby face, 
You have to know who the audience is. God damn it. I'm just thinking if this isn't a heel plot, I'm going to jump off a bridge because I'm, I'm don't want to hear MJF be soft and fucking feeling. Uh, but anyway, MJF said he's not scared anymore because of the fans, because they care about Max. You people got sympathy for the devil. I'm still a scumbag. But God damn it, and this is another reason why Jobber Trent earlier shouldn't have said God damn, because the top fucking star was about to say it. He said, but God damn it, I'm ready to be your scumbag. And the people chant, he's a scumbag. And then he accredits Adam Cole with being the person who taught him not to live with hate in his heart. And gave Adam the big intro, he's this, that, bing, 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 builds him up, my best friend, Adam Cole. And here comes Adam Cole, and he says, I too, Max, was scared and afraid at one time. He was once a heel, and was it was the only reason he was a heel. It wasn't for the money or the glory or the pussy. It was because he was scared and insecure. And he pumped MJF up, and the people love him. There's a good guy in you deep down, Max. Everybody's proud of Max. They plugged the new T-shirt. And then MJF said he promised Adam a title shot after their tag team situation with FTR. And he milked that he wasn't going to give it to him. And you could see Adam's face got crestfallen and the people started going. And then he revealed that he's not giving him a match. He's giving him the match, the main event at Wembley Stadium. For the title, and Adam Cole signs the contract for the AEW world title, and they both tell each other that they love each other. And then they go to the back, and there's Roderick Strong throwing shit around and pitching a fit and just cussing <laughs> up the storm. This was this was a very long segment, but in this show, I I'll take it. I, I, again, I don't know. Now people are saying, well, no, this is going to be Adam Cole is going to switch heel on MJF and they're, and Roddy will join Adam Cole and they're both going to, I don't know what the fuck. And maybe that's the point. We don't know what the fuck's going to happen. And normally that's good with the bloodline. It's good with this. It may be good, but I think the problem is, is that it's AEW. And Tony Khan is somehow involved in the people that he listens to. I never have any confidence that when I see something that I go, oh, shit, that it's going to end up being good. It usually ends up being fucking stupid and not making any sense. But do we have hope, Brian? Should we have hope here? Let me ask you this. What do you think is more valuable right now? Coming out of Wembley. Cole and MJF continuing on, sometimes as a team, always as a friendship. The top babyfaces get along. They help each other out every now and then. They sell a lot of merch. Or Adam Cole becomes a white-hot heel because he turns on MJF right when the fans finally accept him. I think it, well, something has to happen. Whatever is going to happen has to happen at Wembley. It can't just be they go to a draw and hug. Cole fucks him out of the belt. Oh, boy. Jesus Christ. 
Roddy mm. helps Cole win the belt. Do you see Adam Cole as the world champion right now? Because here's the thing. They've got another... They can't have a bigger money match, but it's a pay-per-view match, MJF and Punk. Eventually, to reunify or reunite or determine who the real champion is, the guy that was never beaten or the current title holder. And MJF is fine for being a babyface there because Punk can be both, especially now, and he he's he's bulletproof at this point. You can cheer him or you can fucking boo him. It fits everything fits. Yeah. But if if MJF loses this belt before then, that really kind of muddies that the fuck up. Can can Adam Cole turn against MJF because MJF beats him? MJF wins, and Cole doesn't take it gracefully. On the topic of Punk and the real world championship, which is what they're calling it, do you think that because they've just finally introduced this, he just took it out of the bag, he just spray painted it, they need to ride that for a while before oh. title unification? Oh, good God, yes. They, Like you said, they just started. They just mentioned it. He just brought it out of the bag. They, no, this is a... Three month, or I, I don't know what their next major show is after all in, all out, and in between, whatever the fuck they're doing end of August, 1st of September, but it needs to be the next big event at least, if, if not two after that, before they finally get there. And again, the other option is they have a match, one of them wins, maybe once again they tease someone's going to turn and they don't, and the fans are happy that these two that are both former heels who could do dastardly things somehow enjoy playing video games together and uh, Adam Cole no, if, hanging if out they, at the bar when MJF leaves with all the women. I don't know what their relationship really is. If they've got this far, if they're in front of 75,000 people on a stage like Wembley, they've got to do something to move this forward besides everybody just, you know, somebody being disappointed and learning to live with it, I would think. I don't know what they're thinking. Hey, what's the... Eh, I don't know if I should say it out loud now. Now I'll jinx what? it. What? What's the status of Kyle O'Reilly right now? Um, We don't know. He got surgery of some description and has been out ever since. That was a while ago. I'm not saying he has to heal right away. but I, No, I think, it, I think it was his neck. I think it's like a year okay. type of deal. Okay. But I... I but it's intriguing. Then, then we have no the, idea then where who does go? MJF get to fight all these fucking guys? And he's still the singles world champion. And above, I don't. What do you know mean? Where who does he going. get to fight all these guys? Like who? Who's on his side? Well, yeah. If Adam Cole turns on him, and Adam Cole has Kyle O'Reilly and has Roderick Strong, hey, MJF's gonna have to go find those kids that threw the coins at him. Hey, you know who he could find? I'll fantasy book this with you. He's an all new MJF. He's changed. Everyone who said you need to change, he has. Yeah. He's showing it. He's giving the fans pizza. I've seen a photo of it. Maybe he can go to a friend who could certainly use some help right now named Wardlow <laughs> and say, look, I know me and you, we've been through a lot and we could focus on the bad times at the very end or we could focus on all the good times and all the women and all the drinks. And what do you say? I could use a friend. And Wardlow could say, you know, I've been looking for a reason to ditch Arn. This sounds like the plan. 
There you go. I forgot about Wardlow being there. Right? But now here's the thing. <laughs> now who, since Wardlow is as big as Cole and O'Reilly and Roddy put together, who does Cole and O'Reilly and Roddy go to get to even up between MJF and Wardlow? You can go ridiculous. Well, not ridiculous, but Big Bill wouldn't be a perfect fit, but Big Bill's a bigger <laughs> guy. I'm just trying to think of bigger people there. Let's just have everybody pick sides. Nick Camarado, uh, who's a big guy there? Uh, they can find someone. All right. Well, speaking of finding somebody, next up, we were treated to a six-man tag team confrontation with the Buckaroos, of course, Maddie and Nikki and the Cucamonga kids there and, and their friend Twinkle Toes against Jeff Jarrett, Jay Lethal, and Zippy the Pinhead. And apparently, as I was skipping through this, the Hardy Boys and Hangnail Page and a guitar interfered. And since Jay Lethal is the best talent of the six in the match, that's the guy they beat. What the fuck did I miss? Probably everything that I missed because, you know, I'm not going to watch this. <laughs> I wasn't yeah, going to watch and, this match. And I mean, they gimmicked it up. You could tell on fast forward to, to get through it. That's why the Hardys were running in and Hangnail. Hangnail needed to be there because they cut a promo afterwards or what they consider a promo. Uh, talking about how they had re-signed and they're going to be around for a while. And then Twinkle Toes put on a little extra douchebaggery in his voice than normal and wished us good night, and it was over. Yeah, for me, it was it, like... A is, it, let me ask you one question. Yeah. And then you can comment on that, but have you ever... Has there ever been a case where any single wrestling personality in the business has ever been praised as the best in the business by this number of people and has never done a memorable, a significant or even a really fired-up good promo. Anybody ever? Well, I think to the fans who like Kenny Omega, they would probably point to a Japanese promo or something here or there, but I think he's a horrible promo, and I think all that, four of them... That's what I'm saying. I think the thing about the Bucks and Omega, and even Adam Page, and Adam Page is the best of the four of them, and even he stinks, but none of them could do promos, because they all come across like, you know, Kenny and the Bucks come across so unnatural and fake but in different ways. So I don't think you can combine them at the same time. Well, anyway, that's what happened there. Um, did you like the video of the breaking and entering and criminal uh, aggravated assault? No, I hated this. I absolutely hated this segment completely. <laughs> this is everything I hate about these vignette videos. Completely fake. I mean, it looks good. It would be good on like Showtime, like in the middle of some show. Like, you know, here's yeah. what happened. But for wrestling, no, this doesn't work for me. Last week on The Wire. Yeah, this The Wire, they wish. Uh, this doesn't work for me for wrestling, no. And I don't even know whether they bothered to send anybody of any, uh, like a, a producer, anybody with any experience, or whether they just tell the guys, oh, y'all got cameras out there. Darby knows how to shoot stuff. Just shoot it and send it to us. But Swerve Strickland and A.R. Fox go to Nick Wayne's house and his training garage where his father, Buddy Wayne, trained him. Trespassing. The, thank you. List the, as I <laughs> go through, list the criminal offenses. And they've got a somebody with them that's got the camera phone, so they're shooting this on video. 
And Darby. <laughs> yeah. And basically they go in and Nick Wayne is the young, you know, hotshot prodigy baby face that they, that has the sympathetic backstory that they've wanted to get over. And instead of, okay, yes, for the kind of people who like the modern matches, he had a match with Swerve on TV. That's fine. We, I didn't like it because it was, it didn't show that he could work. It just showed that he could tumble. But nevertheless, you put him in the ring and let him beat normal folks and really hang with the upper level folks. And sooner or later, if he has any charisma and he's not a one trick pony, he'll get over. But instead, they want to go and do some phony shit and make the guy cut his fucking head off. So they go into his training facility there and they say, well, train me, train me, Nick. And they're trash talking him and they beat up his friends that he's training with. And when he gets in a scuffle with them, they take his father's picture and they break the glass frame over his head. And he goes down and it, it's one thing getting color using a blade in the middle of after a in the match or after a match in front of thousands of people when you got the adrenaline going but they made this kid go down and fucking gig in front of four people and a guy holding a camera in a fucking barn for this phony fucking angle that wouldn't really possibly actually happen if they were going to commit to crime they wouldn't broadcast it on television they wouldn't tape it and send it to the fucking uh, AEW producers, and if it was real, the AEW producers wouldn't have aired it. AEW wouldn't even tell us that their goddamn top stars got in a fist fight. Hey, Rube, in the locker room. You think they're going to say that some of their mid-card guys fucking broke into this fucking guy's house, have fucking cut him open with goddamn bashing shit over his head, and then picked up his telephone and made him call Darby? The kid's bleeding. And they make him punch the fucking number into the phone to call Darby so they can trash talk Darby and swerve be dramatic with his verbiage. And then the kid's laying there in a puddle of fucking blood. Probably a cut that would require stitches unless he took a whole bottle of aspirin beforehand. It was fake. It wasn't even to the level of the horseman jumping Dusty in the parking lot was a goddamn, hey, we got this cameraman and we're going to show people what's going on and in and boom and done and out. And you could go, holy shit, but this was just talking and phoniness. And where did his friends go? The two friends, that there was at least one friend. I thought there was two friends. Maybe the same guy got in the ring twice. Oh, they're still training. They're not ready for assault and battery yet. Well, no, once that they got dumped out of the ring, there was shit going on for another minute, minute and a half. They're holding Darby, they're, or Darby, holding Nick Wayne, making him make the phone call. These guys never, they couldn't get back up. They couldn't go find a bat or a shovel. Help me. You know, if there's any place you'd get away with crime like this, it's probably uh, Washington or Oregon right now. So I guess it makes sense in that way. Again, this was all right as a scene for something. 
<laughs> this doesn't work for me as a scene on the wrestling show. The wrestling show shouldn't have scenes. And the that, scene should be seen and not heard. That's what this was. You know, if they wanted to do something where Nick Wayne gets attacked, there was a way to do it so that it felt like it fit within the show, not that it was part of a movie or something. And it was just over the top. Again, you know, how would this happen and then get aired? AEW is scared about everything with legal. We have some unfortunate news. There's been a very violent and illegal assault at the home of Nick Wayne and his family. Wait, we have footage? Hey, let's play the footage. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to end up in court, folks. We can see it coming a mile away. So let us show you everything we've got. <laughs> we'll spill our guts over there. We've got criminal trespass. We've got assault and battery. We've got aggravated mayhem. And, and actually... They were keeping him in one place against his will. That's that's kidnapping. I guess so. I guess so. All righty. Anyway, the next match was for the Ring of Honor World Tag Team title with Ozzy Oldham defending against Commander and Viking O. And I wrote, you got to be kidding, O. And 10 minutes later, Ozzy Oldham was still the Ring of Honor Tag Team Champions. Where did that fucking come from? This was so out of nowhere. Give them credit, Commander, who's the most ridiculous wrestler on the planet. I'm sorry. This guy always catches his breath and does his thing every match. And people just wait for him. They have to wait for him. And that's why I enjoyed this match. There was a lot of, all right, this time, this is the time for his spot. I better wait for it. But him and El Hijo del Vikingo, who I do enjoy, matching trunks for a tag team. When do you see that? So that was nice to see. Uh, I guess Alex Abrahantes is now their manager. I'm glad that he's now being put with this brand new tag team. I, has he ever spoken in the last year? It says hype man on his jacket. We used to hear him say, well, Penthouse says. That's what got him over. Your shit. Yeah. That, that's how he got over. So they stopped doing it so he wouldn't get over so much. Then why is he out there? What like does him. he do? They had a package on the Punk-Starks situation on Collision and uh, to promote Saturday's event there on, on the wrestling program that they produce. So at least, and by the way, I heard Little Birdie told me on the interwebs that they're going to be doing a taping of Collision and Dynamite all in the same night in the same place before they go to England at the end of the month. So I wonder... With all of the members of the Land of Misfit Toys, the same building, are they going to have to have okay collision folks can only inhabit the south side of the building and Dynamite has to stay in the north? Or how are they going to segregate the people that are going to break out into all-out open warfare and try to eviscerate each other if they run across each other in catering? Are the two caterings? What, what's going to happen here? They got what they wanted. They got the money. I don't think they're going to care anymore. Oh, so, so now that they've renewed their contracts and they're going to be soaking Tony for years to come, well, then maybe, does that mean that Punk could call him on the phone or anything, or will he still get no, reprimanded no. by legal staff if he was to do a thing like that? Do not contact Kenny. Do not contact the Bucks. That would be inappropriate. That was, a, that was a, a quote, right? Do not contact. They were, he was put on the do not call list. 
Speaking of don't contact me ever again, the main event of this television program should not contact me ever again. The main event was for the women's title with Tony Storm against Hikaru Shida. She's around still. She's the least offensive of the bunch of them, but still, it's been a long time since we've seen her, and I hadn't missed her, but where did this come from to be the television main event for the last 15 to 17 minutes of the show? Unless they've just said, okay, we're folding our tent and going home here early. Kenny signed the new deal. Sheeta got the main event. I guess Tony retained, didn't she? No, Sheeta won the title. Are you fucking kidding? No, are you serious? You didn't see it? Sheeta won the title. No, of course I didn't watch this. Sheeta won the title. I thought maybe you went to the ending. No, I did Why? I didn't care. I thought, okay, they're just putting... Tony... St- Tony st- she- Kenny signs a new contract and Sheeta wins the title. Wouldn't you know who won the pony? Why is this woman suddenly win the women's title all the time and effort they put into Tony Storm and Ruby So-So and Paige or Soraya or whatever her name is, who are actually names in the business that can speak English, do promos, Tony Storm can work, What? The, but Sheeta, he had it put in a contract, didn't he? I don't think so. Why? How else would this happen? I don't think it's contractual that Sheeta will win the world championship. There's no way. Then why would that happen? Tony Khan? He put the contract, one of my favorite girls from Japan has to be the champion. Tony Khan thought this was the time to get the belt off Tony Storm. Leading into the big Wembley Stadium show. And they even talked about Wait, the fact that- Wait, it was Wembley Stadium in Tokyo? No, but- Isn't Tony Storm? She is she Australian or she's she Australian? Okay, okay, closer than goddamn Japan. Tony Storm's been in the WWE. WWE's been to England. They're huge in England. Tony Storm's been on this television. She's the only girl on the roster practically that can fucking work. And they beat her before the stadium show and put the belt on a girl that we have not seen on this television program in any meaningful way in months and months and months. Yes. We're done here. Well, that was AEW Dynamite. And uh, unfortunately, let me just double check. The ratings are not yet in. Oh, God damn it. I got to see. Again, I don't want to assume because they hit you sometimes and it's like the worst shit you've ever seen. And it's like they pulled 950 for that segment or something. But there's no way that people didn't jump off the fucking boat by the end of this show. I think the people were floating by the fourth quarter. By the fourth quarter of the show, not the fourth. I think of football yes. when you're saying No, that. no, okay. I'm talking about the fourth quarter. They were they were floating by that point. Well, I'll tell you what. Since we don't have the ratings, let's get something before we get out of here, Jim. A lot of people have sent this in. Naturally wanted to get your thoughts. You being one of the greatest managers of all time. Many well, people, thank you very much, Doctor. Many people, other than yourself, would say the greatest of all time. But you've always said you're number two at best. Let's go to this audio. Paul Heyman, along with Roman Reigns, was on ESPN First Take with Stephen A. Smith and whoever his co-host is. I don't know. Let's go to this. 
I mean, there's very few people that, that, that have a job, that have a career that I look at, I go like this, I, w- I wish I had that. I wish I had that. That is how I look at you, sir. How do you view yourself? Wiseman, a phenomenal personality in the sport of the WWE. I mean, what is it like to be you? I'm the GOAT. The GOAT? I'm the greatest of all time. Really? Yeah, undisputed. Undisputed? I mean, there was Bobby the Brain Heenan back then. Screw him, he's dead. Okay. (laughs) And Jimmy Hart's still alive, which proves that God doesn't answer my prayers. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) (laughs) You want to prove to you that I'm the GOAT? Okay, please. I'm with him. Okay. Why would he settle for anything less than the GOAT? Mm. He's the tribal chief. He's the biggest box office attraction in the history, not only of sports or entertainment, but of sports entertainment. He has smashed every box office record that WWE has ever had, not just domestically, but all over the world on a global basis. And he's done it in Saudi Arabia. He's done it in the UK. He's done it in Mexico. He's done it in Canada. He's done it here in the United States. He continues to do it on SmackDown every Friday night, just topping the previous Friday nights. Why would he settle for anything less than the absolute best? That is a tough argument to make, but yeah. I, I, I'll I don't like to talk about it. I'm Please humble, don't. you know. I don't, I don't like to say all that well, stuff. Listen. Well, there it is, Jim, the clip. But a lot of people, I want to get your overall thoughts, but a lot of people, when he said his comments about Bobby Heenan, more people seem to be focused on that than the Jimmy Hart comments, we- but those were there too. <laughs> Everyone wanted to get your thoughts on this. Well, yeah, obviously, first of all, he's working. He's being Paul Heyman. He's being the wise man. I don't think that even Paul's Black heart uh, is, you know, uh, would say, screw him, he's dead about Bobby Heenan. No, that, and, and Bobby would have got a kick out of that comment if he could have heard it. You know, I did shit like that when I worked with Bobby in Ring of Honor in like 2005 when we cut a promo in Chicago. And I said, I wish you'd hurry up and die so I could be the best manager. You know, it, it, that's working. As far as, honestly, what did you expect him to say on this? on this ESPN show with Roman Reigns sitting there. Well, actually, you know, when you take into everything into account, I'm probably number three. No, he's not going to, he's uh, yes, I'm the greatest of all time. I would have said the same thing on there, even though here when I'm being myself and I have no reason to work, I'm not in that situation. I say I'm number two. Bobby was number one. I will, I will acquiesce number one to him every day of the week, and I will fight anybody with facts and statistics that doesn't claim me as number two, even though it is somewhat objective. And I mentioned that on Twitter, somebody had had tweeted out something pertaining to this. I can't even remember what the comment was, but they were discussing between Bobby and Paul, and I said, as the as the unmentioned number two in this equation, Bobby told me himself one time that he that he thought my promos were better than his, that he couldn't talk like me. And and that that may be, honestly, if you go back and look, but since he could outwork me and pretty much every other manager, maybe except J.J. Dillon in history, and since he had the longevity at the top and was instrumental for so such long periods of time to Bruiser's company and the AWA and then the first national expansion of the WWF, Bobby, not only, and the commentary and everything else that goes in with it, Bobby all around was the best ever. And I think I nudge Paul out in terms of, I will never say that I could work like Bobby Heenan, but I could outwork Paul. He never got that part of it. 
and I had more longevity as a manager in the territory days and or the 90s uninterrupted than Paul, who did it briefly in WCW, but then chose to open ECW. He wasn't managing as much at that point in time where I still was in Smoky Mountain. But, you know, you can compare our various attributes and etc., but neither one of us compare to Bobby. And I don't know that Paul now... He didn't have Bobby, though. He had Albano, Blassie, and the Grand Wizard. He never... When did he see, first see Bobby well, Heenan? But I, don't even, I don't even mean compare to in terms of emulating or whatever. I'm saying in terms of all of the metrics that you would use, promo ability, uh, longevity on top, ability to be physical in the ring, the added attributes of color commentary, etc., that a manager can fulfill. Bobby was the best all around for longer than anybody. And so, you know, even if Paul, he didn't see growing up Bobby as much as he saw Wizard and Albano and Blassie and the WWF managers, but even though he took, I think, quite a bit from the Grand Wizard promos, he did his own. He was nothing like Captain Lou. No, and, but but in terms of what they would do at ringside or what they would do during matches or the difference in the kind of managers that you would see in the Northeast growing you think up that Maybe that's that. why he didn't get the physical part. Again, you grew up seeing Heenan. He didn't. And, but no, but I also grew up watching fucking Sam Bass. His work was goddamn phonier than a football bat. <laughs> but his, he had so much heat because he was with Lawler or Hickerson and, you know, fucking Al Green or whatever that people overlooked it. But no, the managers were not always great workers. And, you know, you got you got what you got from them in terms of how they interfered or how they cut promos or how they did the other things. Would you say that Paul Heyman's second run, from whatever moment he cut off the ponytail, from that moment on, would you say that's better? Again, managers are very different nowadays, but as an effective manager, this run is better than everything he did before it. Oh, yeah. Well, that's I was about to say that when you interrupted me earlier in that I think now Paul's verbal ability, his promos and the different way he does things is probably better now than anything that he did before when he was a full time manager in 1989 through 1990, whatever the fuck and or the earlier stuff in the WWF when he was still, you know, wearing a trench coat and the ponytail and the hat and the whole nine yards. He's, he, you know, he's just, he's found his niche with this and he comes off so believable and he's a repulsive looking human being. So with that well, adds don't, don't to say it. that. That's not well, no, nice. God damn. There's nothing about him that's attractive, but that adds to it. There's probably someone who finds him attractive out there. There's some people that like to have their balls nailed to a step stool, but we're not going to fucking consider those opinions as the vast majority of the populace. <laughs> I don't know if that's comparable, but I get your point. <laughs> so, but no, I think, and, and you know, if, if I was managing now, I would probably be doing promos of a different nature and probably playing on, you know, things that we have said or talked about here on this podcast and, and doing things of a different approach, but I'm not going to be doing that because I don't intend to manage anybody that's not in my fucking house. But so, but I think is Paul's promo because when he first started, it was like, I'm evil and I'm going to scream at you and here's why. 
And I'm from Wall Street on New York yes. City. Ah! Yes. Bad. And he'd choke the phone. He would literally strangle his his phone in, in anger. But now he's calmed down when he's gotten fat and bald and probably has, I don't know, congestive heart failure and has been given some deadline on his longevity it? expectations. Jesus. I love Paul. I love Paul. You'll never get past what he did to you in 1988. That's clearly what. No, I'm is. just. I'm never going to get past the fact that fucking look at me. I'm like four years older than him, and look at me, and look at him now. I'm. I'm never going to let anybody forget that. In terms of the comments about Heenan and Jimmy Hart in that uh, segment from ESPN First Take, what does it say about someone who went in character? And I know you don't really like that, but that's what he is in that moment. Yeah, will say anything. I mean, I can't imagine if I was a heel in that moment, there may be certain things I wouldn't say, like, I'm glad a legendary guy is dead. That may be too far, but what do you think about someone that there is no too far? They'll say anything. Well, no, that's, I fully endorse that. I, you know, I would have said some variation of the same thing. And, you know, and I love the line about Jimmy too. Poop, I love you, poo poo, Jimmy Hart. Uh, Jimmy Hart again, and there, there's a guy who, uh, in another, uh, another classification or another description, he was more important to Memphis wrestling for about a five-year period than any other manager, even Heenan to the AWA or Heenan to Bruiser's territory. Jimmy was more important to the Memphis territory than any other manager to any other territory, I think solidly for a five straight year period in, in history. So you got, and, and I, I took a lot more stuff from Jimmy really than, than anybody, but Bobby Heenan, because he was the one that not only was, I was watching right at the time I got in the business, but I was working with him. Certainly you didn't take the bumps from him. You took those from Heenan. Well, no, but no, but <laughs> to be fair would, to be fair to Jimmy, a lot of people don't realize he was already in 1979, he was almost 40 years old when he started as a manager. And at that age, and had never trained and never was trained, just, you know, figure it out like they did to me. And he got hurt because he, at least I had a little bit more padding and my, my bones were 20 years younger, right? But Jimmy had injuries to, to go through all of that. They were always banging him up and beating him up, but he, you couldn't have expected him to. To at that age to start to learn to take a lot of these bumps. So he he took a lot of bumps, but he didn't take big ones. He stayed on the ground as much as possible and rolled a lot, but he still got hurt. All right. Well, that is our last uh, topic here. No questions this week and uh, nothing else because there's a lot of things. And we got even more stuff to talk about, which you'll be hearing on the Jim Cornette Experience in a few days, including another update on Colin Thompson cast media, and what happened to all of our money. But Jim, let's get at least one song before we get out of here. Because We gotta have some music. So many people have been sending in these songs. They're trying to win the spot with the new theme song for the drive-thru or the experience. I don't know about some of these, but let's see what you think. Alright, Jim, let's go. Uh, actually, this first one here is a guest the program jingle from Dennis A. in Des Moines, Iowa. Let's give this a shot. It's now time for a Colts of Cornette Classic featuring the great Brian Last and Jim Cornette. 
Join us as Jim tries to recall the year and location of a mystery match card for Brian's collection. These match cards could be from anywhere in the world. Let's see how close Jim gets. <laughs> That's right, folks. It's time for Guess the Program. Take it away, Jim and Brian. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Feels like American Gladiators with that kind of music. I, I, I was I, actually, I was going to say a, a spot from the AWA Super Clash from like 1989 or 90 era. Well, thank you uh, for that submission. I like it. We'll see if we uh, ever think about it ever again. <laughs> see if we ever <laughs> listen to it again. Uh, no, good job there. I like that. That was uh, entertaining. <laughs> Well, you got the real applause this time. Let's go to another one. This one was sent. It says, here's a song. Hope you like from JR. In the wrestling world, there's a duo with zest. Corny and Mr. Last, truly the best. Passion and humor, they call the shots. From top rope to the apron, hitting sweet spots. When it comes to Meltzer, they never hold back. His shitty star ratings, it's a hilarious attack The elite may soar, but you know what they say It's all just fluff, a childish display Jim and Brian tune into their streams They'll roast the elite, jumping on trampolines Their rants are epic, their humor's divine We stand together and unstoppable these bloody scenes just a desperate ploy a hollow performance a billionaire's toy and jericho heat support an insurrection gets mad at hotel staff he can't keep an erection they'll tell you tales from the good old days the classic matches in so many ways with clever remarks they'll keep them in check no one's except matt hardy's a wreck so here's to james e and brian and kicking podcast ass the forethought and knowledge is a force to behold so join the cult and do what you're told colin thompson of cast media is a conniving weasel cocksucker of a man (laughs) (laughs) was that supposed to be you at the end or was that him i'm not sure but there it is wow It just says JR. The guy wrote no note or anything. He just sent this file. What do you think of it? Oh, that? my God. That's incredible. And it, it sounds like the opening theme of an 80s sitcom Which in works. a good way. Yeah, that kind of works. I'm, I'm thinking a sequel to Full House or something. A sequel to Full um, House. Whatever the case. One of those pe- peppy shows. But uh, that was and, – and some very uh, interesting – Lyrical content, especially at the end. I popped on that. Well, Very you. good, JR. And, and you know, who's, you don't even need to go back to commentary, JR. Just stay home and do stuff like that. Oh, that's not Jim Ross. I can't imagine him making oh, music. I, well, I, you said JR. Did you ever hear him sing? No. Come to think of it, I haven't. Yes, I have. Uh-oh. Yes, I have. When he told the story of how he sang to me on the plane when I was nervous because my Xanax wore off because we were delayed. Is that true? I don't remember it. Well, I don't remember it actually happening because I was on Xanax, but he told it in his show and it was, and he sang then. All right. Well, with that, let me grab one of these. Ah! With that, the drive-thru is closed. 
two weeks in a row with a very good ending. I'm very happy with that. Of course, you could hear more of this fun, relaxing wrestling talk <laughs> with wrestling's two favorite shock jocks on the Jim Cornette Experience, wherever you find your favorite podcast in a few days. And of course, next week, right back here on the drive through go through the archive, patreon.com slash Cornette. $5 a month gets you access to shows going back to the very beginning in 2013. Patreon.com. That's 10 years ago. Patreon.com slash Cornette. You can do math. I can do math. And you can do math too. Somehow by going to YouTube. The official Jim Cornette YouTube channel, math-wise, mm-hmm. just about to hit 370,000 subscribers. Be one of them today on our March to a Million. Hell be two of them. Going past 400,000 soon. The official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Of course, full episodes, clips of the episodes, omnibus collections, all with the Travis Heckle artwork you love. The official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Cornette's collectibles at jimcornette.com. What's going on, Jim? This coming experience. I will have a big announcement on the greatest thing that we've ever done in the history of things that we've done. You're getting out of showbiz. No. Oh. You're staying staying in showbiz. You can't. You can take the boy out of the theater, but you can't take the theater out of the boy. We'll find out more at jimcornett.com. Of course, the drive-thru is brought to you by the law office of Stephen P. New, 888-692-8084. Get even with Stephen at newlawoffice.com. Somebody needs to help pull his foot out of other people's asses. Well, there'll be more feet and more asses this week on The Experience, but until then, for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho!